Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, David. Um, David, this is your first episode being our interim, or maybe forever, we're not sure yet, mm-hmm. co-host. Are you excited? I, I very. You Do sound... I sound excited? Yeah. I it's... sound, I'm, uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, the future is indeterminate. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. you sound thrilled mm-hmm. to be here. Your your office is amazing. <laughs> I've been wondering if that's Ronald Reagan in the corner. Or... Oh, yeah, no, it's just a painting of a cowboy. Oh. Um, that's a good, like, uh, kind of, uh, what's the word? Not Segway. like a premonition, but like a foreshadowing yes, of the okay. episode. There's some Reagan bits in here today. Mm-hmm. Um well, before we get into the episode, uh, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do. The first one is our Patreon is up and running. Um, and we are trying something new on our Patreon where we are going to try to do bonus episodes that are more like our regular episodes but are just supplementary material or like more information on the topic we're talking about on our main. So uh, we will get to a point in this episode where I will tell you what the bonus content is in the Patreon is going to be. So you have a chance to decide if you think it is worth $3 a month for you to sign up for our Patreon. And over there, David has been uh, taking over answering some of your messages and taking your recommendations for show topics. You did your first day of answering messages. I did my first day of answering messages. I am sorry, I do not have Madeline's uh, naturalness with social media. <laughs> uh, it's good, it's a good balance. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I think the tone I've struck is office manager at, like, a mid-level supply company. Yeah, I think that's good. You're, like, the yeah. office manager of the content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. I yeah. think together we'll be a dynamic duo. What you've always needed is more bureaucratic language in your podcast. I think that's... I've said that for forever. Okay, well, I think you don't know this, but I have talked about this in podcasts before where I am very pure, uh, pro-bureaucracy. I... I think, I think I know that from just personal life. Oh, sure. you just yeah. know me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I think the bureaucracy can save the world. Mm-hmm. It's my radical stance. Um, the other housekeeping thing to make note of is book stuff. There actually is a discount going on until the 15th, so Wednesday of this week, I believe, at Barnes & Noble. They're doing uh, 25% off anybody who pre-orders the book until November 15th, like the hardcover copy of the book. Uh, with the code Pendleton25. So that's my name, P-E-N-D-L-E-T-O-N, 25. You get 25% off, and I think that's going to be the best deal on the book to come out before it actually releases January 14th. Um, So if you wanted to get it, I think now is maybe the best time to get it with that Barnes & Noble deal. And I will put a link to uh, where you can pre-order the book in the description of this episode. So with that all out of the way, Uh, Today, we are going to talk about something that's very, very topical. We are going to talk about Israel, but uh, people had requested us talking about Palestine, and I really wanted to try to get somebody who was Palestinian to talk about it. I just feel like amplifying a Palestinian voice would have been good, and unfortunately, I was not able to find in the short time period somebody to come in and talk about this. So... Uh, What I decided is that the best perspective that we could give was an American perspective on Israel. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to be talking about the role of the United States in Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we're uniquely qualified to do as Americans. And it's something that uh, there is a lot of content on because 
the United States is heavily involved in Israel. So that's going to be our topic today, specifically Israel and the United States. And just to like get our brains kind of going leading up to the episode, I've got some stats. I've got some statistics. So since World War II, the United States has provided more foreign aid to Israel than to any other country. Adjusted for inflation, it's a total of nearly 318 billion with a B dollars. And that would be enough for reference to end hunger and homelessness in the United States, both combined for over seven years. That sounds great. Yeah, but no, we're, we're giving it to Israel mm-hmm. instead. Yeah, the next highest amount of aid on this list since World War II was uh, aid provided to South Vietnam during the Vietnam War, which could arguably be called the occupation of South Vietnam by U.S. forces. And that was only around $184 billion. And that was the United States uh, financial efforts to contain the spread of communism in Asia, along with the domino theory that if you let one Asian country fall to communism, they all would. This was something that the United States considered of paramount political concern. And that was nowhere near the $318 billion that we've given Israel. I have a feeling that I'm going to hear the word containment and the word domino a lot. You might, you yeah. might hear it once. You okay. might hear it once. Not a lot, but you might hear it once. Yeah. So between 1976 and 2022, the U.S. supplied Israel with almost 30,000 smart munitions, including these things called JDAMs, which we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. paveways, and SDB smart bombs, uh, which are currently the bombs being used to level Gaza as we speak. Uh, in fact, 71% of Israel's total aid from all outside sources is U.S. military aid alone. And since the year 2000, over 86% of annual American aid to Israel has funded military efforts solely. Okay. So most of the aid we're giving is military aid. And these figures do not even include an additional $500 million. What is that? Half a billion dollars mm-hmm. allocated annually from the Defense Department as well, which is counted totally separate oh. than our regular military aid. Okay, so this this is not even in the almost $300 billion sent uh, nope. figure. This, this is, is just extra. The... Oh, that's fun. Yeah, uh-huh. And in full, the United States funds 16% of the total Israeli military budget. And if you're wondering, do my tax dollars pay for that? If you're an American tax-paying citizen, they, they sure do. And also if you're an immigrant who pays taxes too, because you still pay taxes <laughs> as an immigrant. And that whole tax, mm-hmm. no taxation without representation thing that we love to tell in our lore of founding the United States. Oh, that's a lie. Yeah, that's a lie. That's mm-hmm. a lie because minors get taxed even though they can't vote. Mm-hmm. And immigrants get taxed. Yep. Yep. So all of our tax money is funding all of this. And this means that, yes, our tax dollars are being used to murder Palestinian children as we speak. 1,741 children were killed by Israel from the year 2000 up until October 6, 2023. And from October, tw- uh, October 7, 2023 through November 6, 2023, that's like a month, basically, the last month. 4,104 more Palestinian children have been killed by the IDF using bombs that our tax money paid for. So this is really an American issue as well. And none of this includes so far economic aid that is not used for military purposes, which is an additional 92.7 billion with a B dollars spent by the US from 1951 to 2022. And that is approximately 29% of Israel's economic aid from all sources, which is used for the resettlement of migrants, technological research and development, higher education, uh, and healthcare. And that one is wild to me because we actually do, yes, pay 
in part for Israel to have universal health care. Well, here in the United States, we do not. Um, in the United States, what we do have, though, nearly 18% of Americans have medical debt that is currently in collections. That's not even 18% of Americans have medical debt. Those are the people where the debt is in collections. And one third of all GoFundMe campaigns are to pay medical bills in the United States. So why is the United States so invested in Israel? Why are we funding things for other countries that we don't even have here? That is what we are going to try to answer today. So if you are interested in uh, things that happened prior to May of 1948 in Israel, this is where you're going to want to go check out our uh, bonus episode up on our Patreon. It is $3 a month and we do a minimum of two episodes per month. Uh, we might be aiming to do four a month. That sounds right. Yeah, we yeah. were thinking about yeah each one being like a supplement to the main episode. So we'll see how that goes. I'm trying it out. But our episode today, we are going to start with the formation of Israel in May of 1948. It's like a formal country recognized by other countries. Mm-hmm. And to start this, we're going to go to May 14th, when this thing called the British Mandate expires. And if you want to learn all about that again, the bonus episodes where to get it. But what happens is British control over the territory of Palestine, right, kind of expires. The British had been in control of it, and then they handed it over to the UN because they were like, we made a mess here, which they did. If you listen to our uh, bonus episode, you'll hear all about that. And British control on May 14th expires, right? And this triggers the first war between uh, Zionist settlers and the Palestinians who are living there. So Zionist provocations and land grab attempts had led to skirmishes that blew up into an all-out battle of very unequal forces. Phil Marshall wrote in uh, Intifada, Zionism, Imperialism, and Palestinian Resistance, a few thousand ill-directed Arab volunteers faced well-armed Zionist militias prepared by years of training. And the Zionist strategy in this war was to take possession of all areas that had been allotted to form Israel under a UN plan, which again, we'll kind of talk about in our other episode. So, Then they were like, we're going to strike out from here along these routes and we are going to create different ways to connect to previously existing settlements and we're going to just expand from there. And this actually ended up being a really good strategy. So the Zionists in Palestine quickly took the towns and the means of communication and were pretty victorious. And uh, Ben Gurion is the person who proclaimed a state of Israel in the territories under Zionist control on May 14th. And Mm -hmm. So this is David Ben-Gurion? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he is who became Israel's first prime minister. So on May 14th, he read the proclamation of nationhood. And he literally struck a table for emphasis while announcing, the name of our state shall be Israel. Mm-hmm. So this is where we are starting. And the newly formed Israel uh, had even more territory than an original UN proposal laid out. So the original UN proposal was something like 55% would go to Israel. Yes, um, and 45% would be Palestine. And at the time, the sort of uh, Zionist uh, colonizers made up about 33% of the total population, Yes, yes. And the UN, when they considered dividing up, partitioning is what they called it, Palestine, they kind of did an unequal partition Mm -hmm. and they gave all the good stuff to the Zionist colonizers, to Israel, and they gave the the kind of like meh, meh areas mm-hmm. to Palestine. So Palestinians were like, we do not like this. So yeah. 
when the British mandate expired, the British control of the region expired on May 14th, that's what led to the war because Palestinians were like, this is not fair. Our country was not Britain's to give away. How dare Britain give away half of our country to some random people? And this is what led to the battle. And, you know, the the Zionists were very well trained in combat at this point because they had previous military experience fighting in World War II. Mm -hmm. So they won. They won very, very easily. It was It was not even much of a fair fight. So 11 minutes after David Ben-Gurion reads the proclamation that mm-hmm. Israel has been formed, 11 minutes later, it's technically May 15th now, all right? Mm-hmm. This is when an American statement recognizing the new state of Israel uh, comes out. President Truman at the time comes forward and is like, yes, we recognize the new state of Israel. We are the first country to do so, the United mm-hmm. States. And President Truman's American statement, like the address to the American population, has last minute handwritten changes on it because it was so fast. We were just like, oh, get something out, get something out. And American recognition came in shortly after midnight in Palestine, just minutes after the new nation was proclaimed. And this kind of reflects this greater global U.S. foreign policy that was going on at the time that was all focused on fighting communist expansion. Mm -hmm. So So no dominoes. Well, no dominoes Mm -hmm. yet. But basically... There had been some USSR, Soviet interest in Mm -hmm. the Middle East. So the United States was like, well, if we can kind of lay our claim as allies to Israel, we can maybe have some influence Mm -hmm. over them. And that will kind of be our stake. Like, we'll stake our claim in the Middle East against these other countries who are kind of starting to maybe fall under the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. They had had some uh, communist parties gaining traction in a lot of these countries. There had been some kind of socialist uprisings. And the United States was like, okay, we need ours out in the Middle East, and it's mm-hmm. going to be Israel. Is it my, my, am I correct in understanding that communist parties throughout, let's call it like the former colonized world were, if not hegemonic, at least very popular in a lot of states? Yes, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say they were hegemonic, but they were popular. And it makes sense, because especially yeah. if you look at Marxist-Leninist policy, like mm-hmm. Marxist-Leninism has a specific section in it where it calls for basically like the right of self-determination for marginalized Mm -hmm. and oppressed people so all these people who had been the victims of u.s imperialism western imperialism european imperialism marxist Mm -hmm. lenin has really spoke to them Mm -hmm. right as colonized people so this is why you see uh like communist parties being very very powerful and like Mm -hmm. you know you we saw it happen in vietnam it spoke to vietnamese people because they were like we do not want to be colonized by france anymore and this ideology speaks to our experiences and also gives us a pathway towards resistance and to be something else. Yeah. So this is what was going on also in the Middle East at this time, you know, and this is why the United States was like, we need something to claim there that we can have control over. Maybe it will be Israel. We don't know. By May 15th, right, the day after Israel was proclaimed a state by Ben-Gurion, 375,000 Palestinians had already been expelled from their home like in years prior leading up to this. Uh, Meanwhile, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon all declared war on Israel pretty much instantly. They were like, this is really messed up. This is an affront to Arab nations everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, a British power, a European power cannot just come into one of our neighboring countries and decide to give half of it away. That means none of us are safe. So these countries all declare war on Israel um, and the Israeli forces are like, all right, let's go. 
and they start fighting and they are able pretty quickly to repel the Arab fighters and temporarily occupy parts of South Lebanon, like right away, like we're getting into it. So on May 25th, 1948, Dr. Uh, Weitzman, who's the first president of the new state of Israel, this is 11 days after the country Mm -hmm. is formed, visits the White House and meets with President Truman. So really early on, the United States is cementing our relationship with Israel. So for the next year, 1948 to 1949, this is the time period that Palestinians usually refer to as the Nakba, which Mm -hmm. stands for the catastrophe or means the catastrophe rather. And over the next year and a half or so, another 375,000 Palestinians are also forced from their homes, uh, tallying up around 750,000 total in this experience. And Zionist forces take more than 78% of historic Palestine, and they ethnically cleanse and destroy about 530 villages and cities and kill about 15,000 Palestinians in the process in a series of mass atrocities, uh, which include more than 70 massacres. So on July 9th, 1948, Zionist forces occupied the towns of Lida and Ramla and killed up to 200 people there and also expelled around 70,000 inhabitants. Uh, people who sought shelter in the mosque there were massacred. Between 80 to 170 people inside the mosque were killed with machine guns, grenades, and rockets, and 25 people were killed elsewhere in the towns. Mm-hmm. The rest were expelled at gunpoint at what became known as the Death March. Uh, old men and women and children fell by the wayside. They died of exhaustion, dehydration, and disease on this march. So really, really harrowing things. And uh, money and jewelry and things of value were looted, basically, by the soldiers who did this. So uh, anybody who resisted having their things taken, they were killed. There was so much looting that 1,800 trucks were said to have been loaded with stolen property in this process. So while this was happening... The United States was kind of wavering in how best to support the creation of our new ally country, Israel. Gordon P. Merriam, who was a member of the State Department policy planning staff, complained, you know, like at this time, we have no long-term Palestine policy. We do have short-term open-ended policy, which is set from time to time by White House directives. But he was like, we don't really know what we're doing in this region with this new partitioned country. And this was something that... We learn on uh, we learned in the uh, bonus episode, yeah. which is that under Truman, especially, that it seems sort of like Palestine policy was basically a whim, and he could change his mind at any moment. And he often did. Yeah. And people higher up in other departments of the U.S. government all had conflicting ideas about whether we even mm-hmm. should support. Uh, the formation of Israel, how involved we should be, how vocal we should be. This was an endless source of conflict during the Truman administration. So our support at this time was visually very, like, prevalent, but Mm -hmm. also kind of, like, not concrete. So we were saying a lot of the right things, but we weren't yet committing materially. Right. We were like a boyfriend who swears he's going to change. Mm-hmm. We were saying all the things, but we weren't really doing anything, and we were kind of one foot in the door and one foot out, and we weren't mm-hmm. even sure if we liked this relationship yet. Yeah. Yes. So meanwhile, while this is going on in the United States, massacres are continuing during, you know, the Nakba. Uh, on October 30th, there were two. There was one mass murder that occurred in a village called Sasa, um, and that's according to Israeli forces. They talk about what happened there, what the Israeli forces did there to the Palestinian people. And there was also a massacre by the IDF in the village of Saliha, 
where the IDF entered, uh, that's the Israeli Defense Force, and they killed up to 94 people who had taken refuge there, and uh, more than 8,000 people who were remaining after that just fled. Israel then, after committing all these uh, atrocities and massacres in these villages, prohibited displaced Palestinians from returning to their homes. So if you, if the IDF came to your town and killed a bunch of people, and you were like, oh my god, I'm afraid for my life, and you left, you can never come back. Yeah. So today, it is actually illegal to commemorate the Nakba in Israel. Really? Yes. So this is something that people mm-hmm. aren't really allowed to talk about. Palestinians the, obviously talk about it, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of rules about what you can say and what you can't say about this. So even if you are Israeli, yes, you are not allowed to talk about... You're not allowed to commemorate it, which that's the way the law is discussed. So there could be mm-hmm. different ways. There could be different things you're allowed to say or not say. Okay. Um, but, you know, you can see... IDF soldiers, there's videos of IDF soldiers who engaged in these original mm-hmm. practices of the Nakba, these massacres, talking about what they did. And mm-hmm. they talk about it very plainly. Uh, and you can find these videos pretty easily on the internet. And it, it yeah. is rather uh, harrowing to watch because in some of the videos, you'll see these elderly former soldiers laughing while they talk about, uh, you mm-hmm. know, like torching torching civilians with flamethrowers or sexually assaulting teenage girls i mean it's really really that's it's dark it's dark yeah um so this is all from the jump a mess in the region it's extremely violent it is not peaceful and remember uh you know egypt jordan syria lebanon all in iraq all declare war with israel too and by 1949, Israel was able to secure a truce agreement with most of those countries, but fighting continued inside the borders of Israel and Palestine between the Zionists and the Palestinians. So, from 1950 to 1959, we have some more developments here. In 1950, the remaining 2,500 Palestinian residents of a city called Majdal were forced into the Gaza Strip, and about 2,000 inhabitants of Bir al-Sabe were expelled into the West Bank, and some 2,000 residents of two northern villages were driven into Syria. So we see a lot of people are still being displaced from their homes. And by the mid-1950s, the Palestinian population inside Israel's borders, remember the state has been partitioned into two separate entities, uh, had become about 195,000. And that was dropped down from around 2 million before the formation of Israel. I can you say anything about what the Gaza Strip is just for... Oh, yeah. So the mm-hmm. Gaza Strip today is part of the land that is technically Palestine, but it mm-hmm. is being occupied by Israel. So yeah. there are two main regions we talk about when we talk about Palestine. There's the Gaza Strip and there's the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gaza Strip has around 2 million Palestinian people living in it. Most of them are refugees, I believe. Mm-hmm. Most, if not most, a great portion of them. And the West Bank has around 3 million Palestinian people yeah. living there. And the Gaza Strip is uh, now walled in. I think in 2002 there was a campaign to wall it in. Um, Semi-recently, if not 2002. And it's been called an open-air prison. Some people are like, don't call it a prison because that implies that the people there did something wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people call it an open-air concentration camp. Uh, You know, there's different words used to describe it. But basically the thing to know is that uh, for Palestinians, their movement throughout the region is very, very tightly monitored and controlled. There's uh, now today a number of checkpoints that Palestinians have to go through to do very normal things. There are certain streets that Palestinians aren't allowed to walk on. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are people who have been living in family homes for generations, 
and the IDF boarded up their front doors because the street they live on is for Israeli people only. So they have to climb out of windows and jump on the roof and go down a fire escape ladder to exit through an Mm -hmm. alley just to do things like go grocery shopping or get food. So that is kind of where we see. When these people are being expelled from the villages and forced into certain areas, some of them are forced into Gaza Strip, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why such a large portion of the population is refugees. Some are forced into the West Bank, which is the other area that is technically Palestine, both of which are now under Israeli occupation. And some are just driven out completely into different countries like Syria. And Mm -hmm. some people driven into places like Egypt as well, you know, different neighboring countries. So this is where those... 2 million people uh, are forced to go so that the area that is now technically the newly formed uh, country of Israel, right, in this newly partitioned state, it used to be Palestine, now it's part Palestine, part Israel, the area that is assigned Israel just has 195,000 Palestinian people left in it, down from 2 million total back at this time. The numbers I quoted you for the population of the Gaza Strip and West Bank now, those are current figures. So in 1956, uh, something kind of happens in the region, which starts to affect the United States relationship with Israel. In July 1956, Egypt nationalizes the Suez Canal, uh, which had previously been controlled by Britain and France. So this was a major decolonial effort. And the Suez Canal was built in, what, 1859 and was a way to... have trade routes between what the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic is that where we're looking yes exactly and one of the main things that was traded Mm -hmm. is oil yeah through the Suez Canal so in October 1956 France and Britain actually team up with Israel Mm -hmm. and together they do a coordinated attack to temporarily seize control of the canal Mm -hmm. so this is pretty soon after uh, Israel becomes a country right Israel's been a country for eight years Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, we're going to align ourselves with these European interests, right? Mm-hmm. And we are going to secure control of our neighboring country's canal so that we can use it to access trade in oil more easily. Mm-hmm. So already we see kind of like an expansion mindset from this newly formed nation. Their goal is to expand, expand, expand. And this is pretty major. So half of the canal's traffic is oil. And this huge crisis happens because it, closing it threatens Middle East oil shipments, which supply about 800,000 barrels per day to Europe. Mm-hmm. So Egypt had, under the eyes of the West, been under Soviet influence up to this point. That's why they nationalized the canal. They're like, we control this now. It's not privately owned. And that is part of why the United States' relationship with communism and fear of communism, right, mm-hmm. is so involved in us building up an alliance with Israel. Mm-hmm. So Israel teams up with France and Britain, right? And they're like, no, 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 you don't get to nationalize your canal because that means we can't profit from it. Mm-hmm. And you then you're controlling who gets to use it. No, we need that sweet, sweet canal. So they take it over. And this is kind of why, right? Because it had been such like an economic crisis for neighboring places. And the USSR had, it is true, been increasing its influence in Egypt, also in Syria and Lebanon, uh, because they were trying to support like communist party kind of rising to power in these places they wanted to support other socialists other communists and i think that has a lot to do with that like trotsky idea of like the forever revolution and like how we hadn't quite yet gotten to the point where stalin was like you know what no we're not supporting any of the revolutions anymore we're just doing communism in one country so the ussr was like hey you got a communist party you got a workers party trying to do a revolution there we're gonna help you so that was their policy and there were a lot of countries in the middle east who were starting to gain traction with their workers parties and their socialist movements So, 
As a result, the USSR was able, because they were pretty powerful this time, to put pressure on England and France and Israel to withdraw from Egypt. They were like, look, we got all these neighboring countries under our sphere of influence. Are you sure this is really the, the fight you want to take on? Because we're pretty powerful. We see it's the three of you, and you are pretty strong, but, like, we could do a war. So, the, uh, they're, they're snapping their fingers. They're doing West Side Story stuff. That's, yes. That's yeah, yeah, the vibe. Exactly. And the USSR's main goal in all this was to help Arab nations fight against colonialism and Western imperialism. Like the imperialism, for example, of Britain, right, mm-hmm. and the United States. Yeah. So to have this country, Israel, this newly founded country that was uh, created basically by Britain, right, without Palestinians' consent, come in and start seizing things from nearby other countries, this, like, violated everything that the USSR was trying to support and endorse, mm-hmm. and it optically was, like, a win for the USSR to, you know, to yeah. be like, what you're doing is really messed up and goes against everything we stand for, and we know that all your neighboring countries are going to agree with us. Mm-hmm. So this meant that Israel's action in the Suez Canal in Egypt could constitute kind of a proxy war, like, proxy Cold War that was going on between USSA, or the USA and the USSR at the time. So this is kind of, like, where you start to see the United States being like, oh, we really got to pay attention to what's happening in Israel because it affects how we interact with other countries on the international stage in this Cold War era where we are trying to assert our dominance over the communists. And this meant that Israel, though, did have the potential to be an asset in the Cold War as well because they're doing stuff that's upsetting people over there, right? Like something's happening. And the USSR was able to put pressure, actually, on these three countries to drop the whole Suez Canal thing. But what the U.S. started to uh, notice is that Israel was having, like, a lot of military and armed conflict. And that meant that Israel could serve as a battlefield to test American weapons. Because they're like, look at these people. This country's not uh, afraid to go to any battle. They'll fight anybody. They're just willing to take up any fight. And presumably, it's also, for American arms manufacturers, a bit of a boon to have some country that's like, you know, we love using those bombs. Yeah, we'll use them all. And not only would they be testing military kind of uh, materials, they would be testing them specifically, usually against Soviet weapons. Because the USSR had kind of uh, solidified themselves as the opponent of Israel early on, right? Because Mm -hmm. Israel was this colonized kind of state. Yeah. Colonize your state. So, all of a sudden... Oh, and they also... Another thing that I forgot to mention is that Israel had missiles that were capable of reaching the Soviet Union. So, the United States pays attention to how this whole Suez Canal thing goes down. And that's when they start to go, okay, I'm identifying opportunities here. So, this is the the bad boyfriend is like, actually... Yeah, I could be a good boyfriend. Because, because it, you just won 100000 bucks off of a scratcher, yeah. you know, and I want in on those sweet, sweet resources. So this became this delicate dance. And then it soon emerged to the United States that Israel was an essential middle ground for the United States to wage their Cold War tactics against the USSR all by proxy. So by 1957, uh, the United States states in this, like, internal memorandum It is evident that the basic incompatibility of Israeli and Egyptian aims and the lack of firm agreement regarding the assumptions surrounding Israel's withdrawal poses new threats both to the achievement of a modus vivendi on the Suez Canal issue and the preservation of even the present degree of stability in the Arab-Israeli situation. So the United States is like, okay, this is kind of like interesting to us, but also 
um, it's like a little too much. They're playing too fast and loose, and this means there's never going to be stability in the region. And we, like much of Europe, rely on oil from this region, and the oil only flows if the infrastructure's there to get us the oil, which means you need some form of stability. So the United States is looking at Israel, and they're like, we can work with this, but we have to control them. And so this is when the courtship of Israel by the United States kind of starts, I think, formally. Controlling boyfriend. Controlling boyfriend, yeah. yes. And it's this delicate dance, you know, like I said. And Israel does, as I mentioned, withdraw from Egypt, but reluctantly. Because they're like, oh, everybody's pressuring us now to withdraw. The United States is like, we see what you're doing and we like it, but not like this, babe. You gotta, you gotta mm-hmm. get out of there. And the USSR is like, really? Do you really want to do this? Because, like, we will fuck you up. Come mm-hmm. on. And Israel's like, oh my god, everybody's so mad, everybody's so dramatic, fine, we'll withdraw. But they're like, we gotta have free passage to the Gulf through this canal if we get out of here. And because of this, Gaza Strip becomes an essential point of contention, right? Because it was previously actually controlled by Egypt. And then that control was turned over to the UN. So this is like this whole kind of complicated thing. So already we see that Israel is not playing nice with its neighbors. Everybody else is like, not into this. Still, in a 1957 speech to Congress, despite everybody being like, Israel's playing fast and loose and everything's a little wacky, Eisenhower says that the Middle East would be a prize for international communism and asks Congress to provide economic and military support for any nation or groups of nations in the regions with, quote, governments manifestly dedicated to the preservation of independence and resistance to subversion. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Israel. I'm so, I feel like you're not saying domino. Well, okay, it is the domino theory of the middle. It is, it is, it is. So, this is where we're starting off with this newly formed country. In the first 10 years it's formed, it's trying to flex its power, it's trying to take things, and the rest of the world is like, okay, we're not going to play ball with you. It's kind of like, you know, um, when a young person joins a company you work at and they're full of, like, new, fresh ideas, but they're, like, way too aggressive and they haven't learned how things work there yet. And you're like, I like you, kid. You got the fighting spirit, but you got to learn some things first, you know? It's kind of like that. So that's kind of how the world is perceiving Israel on the main stage. And I think this is, like, really interesting. Um, And then, obviously, though, we get into the 1960s. Yeah. Which is even more interesting. Uh, So anti-colonial sentiment is shaking up the Middle East. The Middle East is like, Europe's way too involved in everything going on over here. Now the United States is asked Congress to start to give economic and military support for quote-unquote any nation in the region who is resistant to subversion by the communists, right? So like they're clearly starting to give a bunch of military aid to Israel. You guys are way too involved in here and we don't like it. So in Egypt, President Gamal Abdel Nasser, I can never pronounce his name, N-A-S-S-E-R, Nasser. Nasser, yeah, yeah. Struggled to throw off British imperialism and unite the Arab countries. He was like, we got to get rid of these Europeans. Yeah. We got to get rid of these Americans. We got to stand together. We got to be strong, and we're stronger together. So he is really kind of shaking things up, and all of these Western powers are like, oh, my God, like, this is really scary. What if they kick us out of here, and then we don't get to lay claim to controlling all of these resources, like all of this oil? So this is kind of the the setup for 1962, when now we've got President JFK, and he calls the bond between U.S. and Israel a special relationship. So he's like, we got to preserve now this special relationship with so, Israel that we've so been So I understand that this is a cynical move on Kennedy's part, where he's like, oh, all of these sort of third world nationalists, like Nasser, mm-hmm. um, 
or oh gosh, I can never remember his name, uh, Sukarno or whatever in Indonesia. Yeah. Are kind of. They're getting a little crazy with the land reform. Yes. Uh, they're nationalizing things left, right, and center. Israel is sort of the center around which we can organize a resistance to these third world nationalist governments. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he's like. Israel is really important to us out there in the Middle East. They're holding it down because they're the people who don't mind the Western powers being there. And we want to make sure we're the Western power they don't mind the most. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of JFK's head. And that kind of idea of the U.S. and Israel having a special relationship, that sticks around for a really long time. You'll still hear people reference that to this day. So in 1963, the Cairo Proclamation happens. So the Cairo Proclamation, April 17th, 1963, announces this new United Arab Republic of all of these countries that are like, no, we're coming together and we're standing strong and we don't want to listen to these Western powers in our region anymore. And one of the things they call for is the liberation of Palestine. Big threat. Big threat to Western power and Western hegemony, right? So many of these neighboring nations are, yes, moving closer to that, like, Soviet Union sphere of influence, and the U.S. is so mad about this. So, like, we have to just secure any ally in this region that we can. And we need to do this by trying to convince all of these Arab countries that capitalist democracy is so much better than Soviet communism, and you need this. You need us. So this becomes the United States' new plan in the region. So May 17th, 1963, the CIA has this internal document come out. And they're like, the Cairo Proclamation is happening as this whole stream of anti-Israeli statements start coming from all of these Arab capitals. And Israeli sources are telling the New York Times that this is indicative of an increased Arab threat to Israel. So this is the first time we really start to see that Israel is like, oh my God, these countries really hate us. We're under threat of attack um, and we need money from you please um and this reminds me of that meme that's like um all of the idf posts on social media are like uh this advertisement for like a, a weird computer game like risk have we talked about this? no what is this okay so it's like this ad that will like pop up on like the sidebar of websites for an online computer game that's kind of like risk where you're like pretending to be a country fighting other countries but the mm -hmm. ad is set up where it's got this, like, really busty blonde girl. And there's, like, this beautiful, idyllic, European-looking country behind her. And then the text is, like, this cursive, silly font. And it says, we are fucking under attack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then somebody posted it. And they were, like, every single IDF post looks like this. Okay. So, this is really where Israel is, like, oh, my God, we are fucking under attack. West, give us all your money and help us so we can fight off these yucky, communist-influenced countries next to us you that you hate. I gotta say, I always click on those ads that I like. America. Yeah. <laughs> this is these are the games you play. I this don't... is what you do in your downtime. Actually, I just play chess. But oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, no, so this is what's going on here, and uh, the CIA though was like, yeah, they're claiming this, but I really like don't know how much of a threat this really is. So the CIA document is like. Yeah, we don't think Israel is actually potentially under threat from neighboring forces at all because they always have this really massive militaristic advantage. Because remember, since the 1950s, when Eisenhower gave that speech to Congress, people like the United States have been actually giving Israel some aid. This is where we start to see the aid flowing in, right? So Israelis also 
pointed to the flow of communist bloc war materials into Arab countries, indicating that these liberation movements against Israel were all supported by the USSR. And that did make the US want to support Israel more. Um, but there are some quotes in here from a CIA report where they're just like, we don't know how seriously to take this. So this one report says, Israel fears that a large Arab state must inevitably come to feel itself strong enough to attack. Or Israeli warnings about the urgency of the Arab threat are unwarranted. No Arab military forces have undertaken action that increases the danger to Israel's security. Individually and collectively, the armed forces of the Arab states are inferior to the quality of those in Israel. So from the same report. So the same report is like, they're telling us it's urgent that we give them a bunch of money, but like when we assess the intel, their military is actually really, really strong and there's no evidence that they actually are under threat of attack. So on December 6, 1963, the CIA decides that Israel is not actually under threat of harm at all. And they say, after an arms race of nearly nine years, Israel's ability to wage conventional warfare is still clearly superior to that of its Arab neighbors, whether the Arabs act singly or in combination. So this is kind of where the CIA lands on this. And you remember, the CIA has never been super stoked on Israel. Yeah. The, like, the State Department's been more stoked on Israel than the CIA has been. The, if I recall correctly, the CIA's sort of read on Israel was from a pragmatic, anti-communist Cold War stance, supporting Israel is just going to inflame tensions in a way that will run counter to U.S. interests. Yes, this is what the CIA had always thought. So the CIA was a little more skeptical of Israel's claims than, like, the Defense Department was. Mm -hmm. um, and in 1965, fa uh, oh God, I don't pronounce this right either. F-A-T-A-H, Fatah, that's how I say it. Is that right? Sure. I don't know. Okay, so Fatah emerges in Palestine. I don't know that I'm pronouncing this right. I'm very sorry. But this is this, like, new force standing up for Palestinian liberation, like the Cairo Proclamation advocated for. And this pops up, and they're like, we got to fight against this occupation and control of Israel in Palestine, and it is led by Yasser Arafat. Right. So, Hilal Kashan, who's a professor of political science at the American University of Beirut, told Al Jazeera, the Lebanese-Israeli border was quiet until around 1965, when the Fatah movement started launching low-intensity attacks on Israeli positions. So these are like guerrilla groups. Yes. Yeah. So they're like, uh-uh, we're going to start fighting you for independence. But again, it's not quite the giant militaristic thing that mm -hmm. Israel had been fearing would happen to them. So Lebanon's public opinion on how to engage with this was split because a lot of people in Lebanon sympathized with the Palestinians. And the ones who didn't were just like, this seems like none of our business and we shouldn't get involved. So nobody was really eager in Lebanon to kind of interject here. Still, though, in 1966, the United States provided $23.7 million in aid to Israel to help fight this new Palestinian liberation group. Mm -hmm. Then, in 1967, something major happens. There's a war. There's a war, and it is called the Six Days War. Mm -hmm. Because, spoiler alert, the CIA internal document was right. Uh, Israel's military was really, really advanced and good at fighting wars. Yeah. So... The six-day war, it lasts six days because that's as long as it takes for Israel to totally dominate in this war. So the central motivation here was for Arab nationalism and an opposition to Western-backed Israeli intervention in the region. This is what sparked the war. Military tensions rose on all of Israel's borders, and eventually Israel ends up invading the Jordan-controlled West Bank, launches airstrikes over Syria, and attacks Egypt. 
They're just, they're just going crazy with everyone. Yeah, they're yeah. just, they're like, uh-uh, this is our region. We're taking control. So Arab oil ministers call for an embargo on any country that's friendly to Israel. And that means the oil shipments to the United States and Britain halt. This is where we get the weird speed limit thing. Oh, wait, is this a speed limit thing? Do you, this was a thing in the 70s where they had to... American cars, famously, not good on gas right. at the period. Uh, yeah. So they limited this because you drive faster. Yeah. Takes more gas. Oh. Uh, so they, like, under, I think, Nixon and Carter or whatever, they limited the speed limit to, like, 55 or something crazy like that. Oh, and this uh, is where we get I, I Just Can't Drive 55. Sure. The Hagar song. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. So, while all of this is happening, Israel also occupies the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, which, remember, previously had been technically Palestine, but I gave a little foreshadowing and said, well, now they're occupied by Israel. So this is when Israel goes in, and they're like, Gaza Strip, West Bank, we're controlling this. So this means that they're now effectively in control of all of historic Palestine. And in this process, they expel an additional 300,000 Palestinians from their homes. Where do those... Pa- so I'm assuming those Palestinians are going to refugee camps in Jordan, like him And there's Egypt. also refugee yeah. camps in Palestine. Yeah. So some people in the West Bank, for example, might lose their homes. They might end up in Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's very... Some of them might be able to leave, but motion at this point gets really, really controlled, especially from Gaza Strip into Egypt. That border is getting tightly controlled. So within six days, Israel had won a decisive land war. They took total control of the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, which is major. They also took control of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem from Jordan, Mm -hmm. and the Golan Heights from Syria. So they're just like, expand, 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 and thousands of Palestinian refugees flee to Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So this is where some of them end up going. And this really is like, becoming more and more obvious that it's like this cold war proxy war thing happening in the united states right because all of these arab nations starting to nationalize things they're getting increasingly you know socialist or like communist sympathizing at the very least and they are all kind of fighting against israel and israel has those same quote-unquote western values of like britain or the united states it is the neoliberal capitalist quote-unquote democracy yeah and like sort of third world non-aligned movements were like a thing where it was like hey we are literally not the first world you liberal capitalists yeah the second world right but now we're third world like we're our own thing but now they're kind of getting second worldly yeah i mean there's a you get like nasser was sort of like a very big proponent of like third worldism as a specific ideology that so this is like all happening that's like these people being like hey we're we're our own thing. We're our own a, thing, yeah. In a way that uh, sort of complicates ten, like the already like weird Cold War stuff, right? Yeah, it does. <laughs> but also, they are pretty receptive to the USSR because the USSR is not coming in being like, yeah, 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 come join the Soviet Union. They're like, no, you should be free and we will support you in your efforts to fight yeah. off Western imperialism because we abhor Western <laughs> imperialism in all forms. We think this is evil and we want to fight it and we want to help you. So that's <laughs> kind of going on too. And while all of this is happening, the United States, meanwhile, is super struggling in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We are losing the war against communism in Vietnam. Super hardcore. So the U.S. is looking at this and they're like, all right, Israel has proved its ability to militaristically overpower all of its neighbors, right? And they were able to squash this war in six days. 
So if we really, really focused all of our efforts on making sure we were Israel's number one ally from this point forward, more than Britain, more than France, more than any other Western power, you know, the United States could then use Israel potentially to exert control indirectly over this entire region. So Joel Benin, who's a professor of Middle East history at Stanford University, explained it like this. What's key about the 67 war was Israel defeated the Arabs hands down in six days with absolutely no American military assistance. What that said to the United States was, these guys are good. We're in a mess in Vietnam. Let's be connected to them. And things developed gradually over time. Now, the thing about his quote about like absolutely no military assistance from the U.S., remember, you know, the year before the U.S. had provided $23.7 million in aid to Israel. So it's not like it was actually but it no was assistance. But was it not specifically military aid? Not that, specifically yeah, that, military okay. aid. Yes. So the United States then quickly replaced Britain as Israel's new little imperial sponsor, but the United States was a lot more committed than Britain ever had been. The United States came in hard and strong after the Six Days War. They were just like, what do you need, little buddy? We got you. What do you want? Like, we're going to make it happen. And after the war, the United States increased its aid to Israel fivefold, hoping to take advantage of this new ally they had blossoming in the region. Meanwhile, 1968, Yasser Arafat's Fatah took control of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, which you've probably heard of, which is a broad coalition representing the Palestinian people and their struggle for liberation. And Palestinians now started to launch operations against Israel with the 14 groups under the umbrella of the PLO. So resistance fighting is ramping up. They're like, uh-uh, we're not just going to go down without a fight. And in 1969, on November 2nd, delegations led by PLO leader Arafat, Yasser Arafat, and Lebanese Army General Emil Bustani signed the Cairo Accord. And this was the agreement that transferred control over 16 Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon to the Palestinian Armed Struggle Command, which was an entity created by the PLO. So the following year, the PLO relocated its main headquarters from Jordan to the Lebanese capital, Beirut, and its military headquarters to South Lebanon. So around this time, Lebanon really steps up and is like, hey, Palestinian people fighting for liberation, we're going to help you. We believe in your cause. We're going to be your go-to people. It seems like people are beginning to pick sides. Well, yes, have picked sides. People have picked sides, but the sides yeah. are really getting solidified. Yeah. Okay, so this is when the United States is like, we're throwing it all. We're, we're betting all on Israel. Mm. And Lebanon is like, we're going all in on Palestine. So this gets us to the 70s. So in 1970, the CIA reports on oil developments in Israel. And they're like, about 99% of Israel's total supply of energy is derived from oil, right? And the bulk of its oil comes from outside suppliers. And few countries are willing to sell oil to Israel because uh, much of the free world oil outside the United States is under Arab control or influence. And these Arab countries are not fucking with Israel. They are just like, why are you here? Oh my God, get out of here. Um, but what they're kind of identifying here is that remember when Israel seized control of Sinai from Egypt? Well, they haven't given that back. Mm -hmm. They're like, that's ours. And that region has a lot of oil. So Sinai, Egypt is seized by Israel during that six day war. And it's viewed as strategic because it provides roughly 10 times as much oil as the areas in Israel's borders at the time. And the only source of domestic oil in Israel proper during this time was this relatively small producing area made up of the Halez, Barar, and Kokob fields. Uh, and the oil in these fields was not particularly suited to Israel's needs. And 
you know, reserves had been pretty exhausted up until the mid-80s, 1980. So at the time, the 1970s, when this was happening, it was pretty, pretty low. And uh, exploration for new oil had gone on since 1953, but they hadn't had a lot of success. So this kind of uh, Sinai Egypt oil was really, really important to Israel. And this is why since late 1967, Israel claimed, uh, you know, on the basis of its status as an occupying power in Sinai, the right to explore for oil in the eastern half of the Gulf of Suez and awarded an oil protecting and operating concession to a British subsidiary of a U.S. firm. So already Israel is like starting to prove profitable, right, yeah. in the region. They're like, you want oil? That's why you guys have been trying to please all these Arab countries? We can do oil. We got oil right here. We stole it. We seized it. We took it. We'll give you oil. That's fine. So the United States is like, oh, okay, we can get our little oil needs met here. And this, um, having, like, access to this oil from this, like, occupied part of Egypt saves Israel an estimated $25 million per year also in needing to import oil, which is why, despite pressure from the international community uh, to just, like, release control of Sinai, they're like, no, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. And also, to the United States' credit, they did publicly be like, you gotta lay up on this trying to steal land from everybody shit, Israel, because you're making everybody look bad and we want to back you but it makes us look bad to publicly back you when you're going everywhere and stealing everything from people. This feels like uh, we still hear echoes of this because every time Israel takes land, uh, there's a sort of like, oh yeah, we really do, we would love to condemn that, but like also here's our money. Yes, exactly. Um, So the United States is like, this looks bad, I mean, we're happy you did it, but it, like, it looks bad, so maybe you should ease up a little? Maybe mm-hmm. you should not. So tension is just, like, mounting all over the Israel situation, right? But still, despite this, the bond between the United States and Israel is developing. Our special relationship. Our special relationship yeah. is growing. And at first, the U.S. was mostly giving, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but also selling weaponry to the Israelis, which made a little bit of money, and also allowed Israel to borrow from U.S. banks at below market rates. That's... Which is wild. That sounds great for Israel. Yeah. So the United States is giving, 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 and the most we're kind of getting back is like, oh, you know, we'll sell you some weapons, we'll make a little money, but also Mm -hmm. we're giving you money because you can borrow from our banks at below market rates. And that's wild because, you know, the Fed in the United States sets the rates for borrowing money so that our economy doesn't crash. Because this is what happened with Keynesian economics. See, mm-hmm. after the Great Depression, we used to have this, like, much more free market, free marketing, and then the Great Depression happened, and then all of these uh, American capitalists were like, oh my god, no, the socialists were right, capitalism is unsustainable, and this guy Keynes comes about, and it's like, I hate communism and socialism so much, the only way to save the United States from communism or socialism is to do a teeny bit of socialism as a treat and actually control the markets a little bit. Uh, and one of the ways we could do that is by setting the interest rates at the federal level mm-hmm. for how much people pay when they borrow money, and that'll help control how much money people are actually borrowing. Tee-hee. Yeah. So that's when Keynesian economics gets introduced. And at the time, it was like this heterodox economic theory, but then it becomes like super mainstream, and now it's just a part of U.S. policy. The Fed, right, which is created the- by Congress, sets the interest rates. But the interest rates don't apply for Israel. That's cool. Good Israel for the, I mean, gets its own special interest rates. This is, uh, the rules don't apply for Israel feels like a theme already. Oh, oh it's, it's such not, a theme. 
you know, like, we'll, like, him and haw about you stealing land the oil is on, but we're not gonna actually do anything Nobody's actually that mad. Also, uh, something we'll see is, like, war crimes. Mm -hmm. War crimes are bad, unless it's Israel. Israel. Then it's just, like, one of those things, what are you gonna do? Yeah. And this is, like, this meme that we'll, I'll I'll actually post on uh, our Instagram, because I always think this meme is funny. It's, like, a Simpsons meme, so it's, like, Homer Simpson and Bart... And Homer Simpson has the American flag on his face, and Bart Simpson has the Israeli flag on his face, and Homer is saying, hey, nobody gets to commit war crimes but me, and maybe the boy, and the boy is Israel, <laughs> yeah. So, that's, yeah, really, really, the the rules don't apply to Israel thing is, is happening here. So... This had been the situation going on up until the early 70s, but then new forms of cooperation start to take hold that might end up being more beneficial for the United States, too. Like in 1972, for example, this thing called the BSF Foundation is founded, and that's the U.S.-Israel Binational Science Foundation, which is supposed to promote scientific and technological research exchanges between the two countries. And this still exists today. In August 2019, Israel's Council of Research denounced it would provide $56 million over a five-year period to expand this program. Uh, So then in 1973, the U.S. starts to fund settler colonization in Israel. So since 1973, Israel had been receiving approximately 1.69 billion dollars with a b in grants from the state department's migration and refugee assistance account called mra to assist in the resettlement of migrants to israel and these funds were paid to something called united israel appeal which was a private philanthropic organization in the united states who then would turn around and give the funds over to israel to fund these things So between 1973 and 1991, the United States ended up providing around $460 million to support new settlements in Israel. And a lot of these settlements were in places that had been occupied, well, all of them had been occupied by Palestinians. Yes, exactly. So that's when we hear all these villages that Mm -hmm. were massacred and destroyed. New settlements popped up either literally in those buildings, like in those Mm -hmm. homes, or they were demolished and new ones were built on top of it. And that's when you see videos online of people like being like, yeah, you're literally in my house. Mm-hmm. Like, Palestinians being like, these people are in my house. It would be from something like that. Like, yeah. no, people were literally expelled from their villages and settlers were literally given their homes or their homes were bulldozed and new ones were built on top of them. There's actually a photo that's pretty famous that you might see somewhere mm-hmm. floating around the internet of a really elderly Palestinian couple standing in the street looking at two settlers like behind a gate in front of a house Mm -hmm. and there's a whole documentary that goes along with it and basically what happened is these uh, journalists took this elderly Palestinian couple to go see their old house in what had been Palestine but was now Israel and they stood in the street and they were looking at the house and the people who lived there came out the new settlers and they were from Brooklyn they had come from Brooklyn to settle Mm -hmm. and uh, they were like what do you want you know and the journalist is like oh this used to be their house like they lived there like how, how does that make you feel? Like, do you feel anything knowing that? And the the couple, the American couple, is like, no, oh, I feel pretty good. Yeah, we're pretty happy here. We feel fine. Yeah. So this kind of picture is that goes along with this whole story in this documentary is, is pretty, like, uh, iconic, and you, you might see it floating around the internet. But this is kind of what's happening. And the U.S., starting in 1973, starts funding this in a major way. So um, this was actually done as an attack against the USSR, Right, because funds originally were only being used to settle people coming from the Soviet Union up until 1985. 
to oh, be like, oh, they hate the Soviet Union so much they want to leave. Haha, ha, we'll pay for that. Get out of there. Bleep. But in 1985, then it just kind of opened up and was being used for people from multiple places. So in April 1973, Israeli special forces uh, did an offensive. They took speedboats and they landed on Lebanese beaches. Remember, because Lebanon had been like, we're going all in supporting the Palestinian resistance here. And there they assassinated three PLO leaders. Um, and this became known in Arabic as the Verdun Massacre, basically. In October of that same year, Israel inflamed tensions in the Israel-controlled Egyptian, Syrian, and Jordanian territories. Remember, because they seized those territories yeah. during the Six-Day uh, War. And they refused to remove military from these locations. And the U.S. kind of got mad because they were like, this is creating regional instability that is bad for business. Remember, our whole goal is you're supposed to be there, Israel, stabilize the region so that the oil keeps flowing. But when you do shit like this, it creates instability because it pisses people off and now everyone's going to start fighting. Uh, meanwhile, though, the U.S. didn't really have much of a leg to stand on because we were still, yes, losing the Vietnam War to communists fighting for independence there. So, also, anti-colonist sentiments start to emerge all over Africa. So the United States is like, Israel, we really can't deal with you right now. Can you just get your shit together and hold this down? Because we're losing all sorts of wars all over the place. Domino theory. Yeah, okay. You okay, said okay, it. You domino said theory. The Thank domino you. theory is domino. All go. the places are falling to communism. Yeah. And the U.S. is kind of freaking out. So Israeli intelligence discovers that Egypt and Syria plan to attack in the hopes of gaining back access to Sinai, which Israel had taken in 1967, and Israel does not want to give up because it's got all the oil. So Israel's like, we're going to do a preemptive attack. But then they're like, wait, wait, wait. If we do that, we're going to be viewed as the aggressor in the region. Wouldn't it be better to be viewed as a victim in the region? Like, oh my God, no, they attacked us and killed so many of our people. Oh, that's so sad. So they also were like, the United States will like that a lot better, right? Because yeah. the United States told us we can't go fucking shit up over here and being super aggressive. But we really want to fuck shit up. Yeah, they really wanted to, but they were like, no, no, strategically it'll be so good, it'll make us look like a victim, and then the United States won't be mad at us. And then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was like, yeah, good call, because if Israel had struck first, quote-unquote, we would not have sent over so much as a nail. So they're like, you, you're right. If you had struck first, there's no way we could have supported that. But because you waited, you had the intel, and you're like, we're going to get attacked. We're just going to sit here and wait to be attacked. Then you knew we would be able to support you because now you're defending yourself. That's nice. We're defending your mm -hmm. illegally seized oil reserves in Egypt. Who can blame you for that? I, you know, I uh, usually the only times I ever do violence is when someone attacks my ill-gotten goods. Your ill-gotten goods. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this ends up becoming what is known as the Yom Kippur War because it's October 6, 1973. It's Yom Kippur. So Egyptian and Syrian armies attack Israel. Israel pretends to be surprised. Oh, no, you're attacking us. Uh. Israel fights back, drives back the Egyptian and Syrian armies. But Israel did lose 2,500 of its own people. So they let 2,500 of their people die. Mm-hmm. So they could justify being... Ex expansion. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then Nixon is like, okay, because you're the victims, I'm allowed to order weapons and supplies to be airlifted mm -hmm. into Israel. Well played, guys. And Israel ends up trapping a section of the Egyptian army in this really strategic area where they have no access to food or water. And Israel's like, haha, we're going to kill them all. 
Uh, but actually, Henry Kissinger is like, you cannot kill them all. Which I'm just like, think about how evil your techniques have to be for Kissinger to be like, that's too far, bro. You gotta walk it back. I, you know, I mean, I have to assume that Kissinger was like, look, hell's already really crowded. <laughs> I have a private room reserved. Yes. If y'all are down there with me, I might have to share a bunk bed right yes kissinger was like there's no room for this many evil people in one place you got to be less evil so kissinger tells the israeli ambassador that slaughtering the egyptian army there is just quote an option that does not exist Mm -hmm. which i you know the word the wording sounds very precise so they're like fine we won't totally massacre the egyptian army after we trap them in a strategic stronghold without access to food and water but that's no fun now the ussr following this war is even more resolute in their support for Palestinian liberation. They're like, this Israel thing is fucked up because Israel obviously won the war, right? So the USSR increases their ties to the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, as well as the Marxist-Leninist Popular Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. They're just like, we're going all in on you guys because this Israel thing is getting fucking out of control. The Soviets also increased financial support for Palestinian resistance fighting just in general, and that increased the U.S.'s position to back Israel in this Cold War proxy thing even harder. So the USSR is like, we're going harder on Palestinian liberation, and the United States is like, well, fuck, now we gotta go even harder on Israel. Because we're not actually caring about, we care about fighting the USSR, basically. Mm -hmm. So the assessment on the U.S.'s end was this. Israel had again demonstrated definitively that it could militarily dominate any other nation in the region. Yeah. Like, Kissinger had to beg them to not massacre the Egyptian army. Yeah. So the United States is like, yeah, Israel fucked up. They really know what they're doing there. Uh, But Israel, at this point, their force, their ability to navigate things militaristically is pretty dependent on us, Washington, for funds, weaponry, and diplomatic cover. So the diplomatic cover is, like, someone goes to the UN and is like, no, 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 this is fine. Right. Or they're like, wait wait until they strike first. And then they do, and they're like, oh, my God, poor victims. Here, take all this money. So the U.S. is like, we know how to play the game. And if you stick with us, we will teach you how to play the game. But you need to chill the fuck out a little So that you can do more damage. So you can do more damage long term. Yes. So the United States comes out of, you know, the Yom Kippur War like, damn, like, they do really know what they're doing. And Congress then appropriates $2.2 billion with a B dollars for the next year to help Israel, quote unquote, rebuild their military, which is now an increase of 350% from the previous year. So remember, after the last war the contributions went up fivefold. After yeah. this war, now they're going up 350%. So every time Israel goes to war, they get more money from the United States. I feel like if I were Israel, or at least Israel's government, I'd be going to war all the damn time. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, get that sweet American uh, dollar. Get that American moolah. We just go to war and they send us shit. And, of course, Arab states responded by suspending, again, oil shipments to any nation supportive of Israel. They're mm-hmm. like, again with this shit. Like, no, stop. And this embargo reduced traded oil supplies by 14% internationally, just from this one ruling alone. And this is when gas prices in the U.S. increased 40% in just a few months. No, this is actually where the 55% happened, because it was like, oh shit, we can't. 
Yes. Uh, like the uh, there are stories of like lines around the block and uh, gas rationing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is when there was the gas crisis, I think mm-hmm. is what we called it here. But it wasn't just here. It was also Europe and Japan mm-hmm. because we were all the allies of Israel. So, yes, like you said, there's oil shortages. There's hours-long lines at the gas stations all across the United States. People start to, like, hoard gas supplies. There is the gas rationing. Mm-hmm. There's price control set. And on November 7th, this leads President Nixon to announce a bunch of new energy policies called Project Independence, which is this goal to have U.S. energy independent by the year 1980. Mm -hmm. It does not happen. I'm assuming some drilling does happen. Uh, We we do some fracking. Yeah. We do some offshore drilling. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Alaska. We're drilling a lot in that beautiful, beautiful place. Drilling for oil. Oilville. Oilville? Do you remember? It's by Bakersfield. Oil Dale. Oil Dale. Okay. Oil Dale. Yeah, it's run by the KKK, I think. That's. I'm pretty not sure. Not surprising. No, I know it's not surprising at all. Um, so yeah, lots mm-hmm. of oil. I mean, in LA, we mm-hmm. drill for oil. Oh yeah. Just in a, the city limits, not even by, like in the country. Oh, out by a like Playa del Rey or whatever. No, no. There's like oh. a lot of places we drill for oil in LA. Huh. Like, by the La Brea Tar Pits. Like, sometimes you'll just be driving around, and they'll, like, try to conceal the oil drilling, and you'll just be like, that's an oil drill. That's... Yeah. That would be, like, a fun first date. Like, let's go see all the oil drills, just, uh, like, kind of half-hidden around Los Angeles. Let's see how, how our water is being poisoned. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't that be kind of fun? Cute. I think yeah. that'd be a cute first date idea. Um, so, this brings us to June 24th, 1975, and then there is a memorandum for the U.S. president from Henry Kissinger that comes out. Covert, you know, it's mm-hmm. like a little secret. And it says, The National Intelligence Analytic Memorandum concludes that in any foreseeable conflict situation, Israel will have a clear military advantage. Mm-hmm. So this is just like, we are not fucking around. We know if a fight comes up, these guys are going to win. And this cites that the majority of Israel's weaponry at this point is from U.S. inventories or production. So we know this. By 1975... The majority of Israel's weapons come from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And this is when really everybody's like, they're not going to lose anything. They're going to win everything. And states that Israel, at, also in here, could lose up to 38,000 people in a multi-front attack if Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan all attacked at the same time. But even taking 38,000 casualties, they would still win a war against all those countries at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So this is what the United States is looking at. And they're like, Israel's going to win. So at this point, the United States is like, look, we picked the winning side. Yes. Our bets are all, all doing great. Like, we're good. We're good. We ha- we've got secured control in this region, like, mm-hmm. down. Yes. So in 1976, the U.S. supplies Israel with 100 of this thing called a GBU-8 Hobo. That's the name of the bomb. Okay, and this is a homing bomb system developed by the U.S. Air Force for use during the Vietnam War. And this is when we start to be able to keep track of all the weapons specifically that the United States is providing. We know they have been providing weapons up until then, remember, because that 1975 memorandum said that the majority of Israel's weapons have come from the United States by this point. But 1976, we really start to keep track of what we're giving them. The, uh, a bureaucrat gets in there who's really good on record keeping. Who's okay on record keeping. I'm confident this isn't all of them because, like, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen all the stuff about, like, when uh, the Department of Defense gets audited 
Oh, no and then And then, like, the government will try to audit the Department of Defense, and they'll go in and they'll be like, we can't even audit you because there are no records. And then they look and they'll be like, the only record I have here shows you paid $60 for one nail. And then they're like, oh, yeah, is that not the price? <laughs> so it's, like, literally, like, the State Department, like, the Department of Defense is beyond reproach because they just don't keep any records and the records they do keep make no sense. I think what you're telling me is they're laundering money to buy weapons. Oh, I mean, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. If you look at anything that CIA's done, like with the Contras, mm-hmm. you know, or um, like even stuff like how, like during the Iraq war, uh, the U.S. military lost like a billion dollars in cash, I'm pretty sure. Uh-huh. I think it's a billion. It was some huge sum of money that they just took out in cash because they're like, well, we can bribe people easier with it. And then uh, it just all went missing and nobody knows where it went. You're really good at the statistics where it's like, we could solve world hunger for this lot. Like, yeah. 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 With all the, the money we lose. Yeah, we quote unquote lose. But the thing is, we don't even know. Yeah. Because it's impossible to keep track of. Yeah, so, like, this is the thing, too, if you know anybody who's like, I'm a fiscal conservative, it's like, if the U.S. military is not your number one enemy as a fiscal conservative, I don't think your ideology holds any water at all. Because this is where money goes to be lost forever and not be productive, is into our military budget. Cool. Which is wild. So, 1976, the U.S. supplies, we know this, Israel, with 100 of these GBU-8 hobos, a homing bombing system that we talked about that was originally developed by the U.S. Air Force to be used during the Vietnam War. And this weapon was made by Rockwell International Corp., which is a now-defunct American military contractor founded by Willard Rockwell in 1973, who, of course, died a multimillionaire. Very rich man. This is the guy making these things. In 1977... The Bird Foundation, which was a U.S.-Israel uh, US Bi-National Research and Development Foundation, this is formed. And this provides matchmaking services between Israeli and American companies in research and development with the goal of expanding cooperation between U.S. and Israeli private high-tech industries. So we really start to see 1967 or 1976, 1977, we see this like military-industrial-tech kind of mix up between the United States and Israel mm-hmm. like your money's ours our money's yours we're buying weapons we're using high tech and it's all mixing together in this giant pot this it does sound a little bit like a matchmaking yes thing which is. is you know would be cute were it not for all the death yeah it's like yeah. oh you know like we we just really these like long lost lovers who don't know each long other lost exist. warmongers yeah find each other and develop at an international business conference and develop a hundred homing mm-hmm. weapons to be used to kill children yeah yes uh in war crimes yes mm-hmm. exactly so the projects that the bird foundation takes on are of course supporting areas of homeland security communications electronics electro optics software life sciences and renewable and alternative energy. Because remember, that's a major military disadvantage that Israel has to rely on Egypt for this oil and the United States has to rely on the whole Middle East for this oil. Mm-hmm. So this is what they're trying to figure out with each other. And according to the foundation, 381 million grants have so far been awarded to 1,033 projects. And these awards typically range from $700,000 to $900,000 each. And they vary based on the total project budget, other considerations. So we're given a lot of money to try to 
develop and bolster this like military industrial complex and so it's all going into like private corporations private companies yeah yes Uh, and and defense contractors israeli american whatever Mm -hmm. so in 1978 lebanon-based palestinian fighters start to conduct more cross-border raids there's picking up steam they're like we're doing we're fighting for the palestinian liberation and in March of 1978, Israel invades Lebanon and advances as far as the Latani River. And at this time, Israeli armed uh, and financed the South Lebanese Army, which was composed of Lebanese Christians. Palestinian groups, meanwhile, were backed by Syria. So in response, the UN Security Council passes Resolution 425, which calls for the immediate withdrawal of Israeli forces from Lebanon. Mm-hmm. They're like, what the f- get the fuck out of there. And it also established the UN interim force in Lebanon, which still operates to this day. Um, and while all this is happening, though, the U.S. is still like building buddy deals, building buddy deals with Israel, and the Bard Foundation is created, and that's the Binational Agriculture and Research and Development Fund. And this is supposed to support U.S.-Israeli cooperation in agricultural research. And as of 2020, it had dispersed 315 million dollars in grants for over 1,300 projects. So these are kind of the important things happening in the 70s in israel right we got palestinian fighters freedom fighters operating out of lebanon we got israel trying to fight them in lebanon we've got the un being like oh my god israel you can't just invade lebanon please stop we have some people in lebanon who are like fighting on behalf of israel to the christian lebanese soldiers we got other people in the middle east like leave the fucking palestinian freedom fighters alone we hate you and meanwhile the united states is like hey do you want more money that at this point we I what the original analogy was like an absentee boyfriend and then yes. we became like a rich boyfriend. Yes. Uh, I think at this point we're feeding someone's drug habit. Yeah, we're enabling. We're yeah. enabling hardcore and all of this because by the end of the nineteen seventies, Israel is viewed as this countervailing force to Soviet influence in the Middle East, and we are gonna keep our little grip on them as tight as we can Mm -hmm. so now we're in the 80s a lot of good stuff happens in the 80s uh i was born in the 80s so that's how you know you know there's some good stuff happening there countervailing to that i also was born in the 80s (laughs) (laughs) so in the early 1980s israeli leaders are like we want to expand our strategic collaboration with the united states military And we're going to do this by inviting you, the United States, to stockpile your arms and equipment at Israeli bases so that Americans can use them whenever you want during war. Just move on in. Mm -hmm. We're moving in. The couple's moving in. My stuff's your stuff. Your stuff's my stuff. Move on into my place. They're mixing up the book collection. They're mixing up the records. Yes. Yes. So in 1982, the United States was like, oh my God, Israel, you're so sweet. We're going to give you 100 GBU-15 bombs. And these are an unpowered glide weapon that's used to, quote-unquote, destroy high-value enemy targets. So basically the way these work is the pilot of a plane selects a target before launch. They lock the weapon's guidance system onto that target. The weapon then automatically guides itself to the target while the pilot leaves the area. And this was also developed by Rockwell International here in the United States. So meanwhile, on June 6, 1982... Israel again invades Lebanon under the pretense of stopping PLO raids across the border. The Israeli forces, however, progress 
pretty far. They go uh, up to the capital, Beirut, and they lay siege to the largely pro-Palestinian West Beirut region. And the invasion leads to the eventual departure of the PLO from Lebanon altogether under the supervision of a multinational peacekeeping force on September 1st. So, like, a lot of people got to come in and be like, we're getting you out of here and we're getting you safe, PLO, this is fucked up. Uh, and Israel's invasion of Lebanon also helps to spark the creation of Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? I say Hezbollah, but... Hezbollah, okay, yeah. yeah. See, it's so hard. You read the words. Yeah. And you don't say... Yeah, okay. So, this is all done with the backing of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, under the impression, like, that other Arab countries were just abandoning Palestine and somebody needed to fight for them. Yeah. And this ends up being a whole thing. Obviously, the United States' role and sphere of influence in Iran is... Uh, wild. And we have an episode about it called... Uh, and Iran, Iran's so far away. So we talked all about U.S. involvement there, if that interests you, but it's wild. So upon the request of the government of Lebanon, the United Nations authorizes this multinational force in Lebanon, the MNF, in 1982 to help the government regain control over the country. Because Lebanon is just like, oh my God, we need an assist. Everybody's in here. We don't even know what's happening anymore. Israel just thinks the border doesn't exist, I guess. Like, just just someone to please help. And the UN's like, all right, we're going to come in. We're going to help you get control of this. Um, And the United States is like, God, how involved in this do we want to be? Right? And in the Reagan administration, people are like, should we go to Lebanon as part of this MNF multinational force to help secure Lebanon against Israel? Like, we like Israel. We pay Israel to do things like invade Lebanon to fight the PLO. But we don't want to go there. Right. We don't. But so it's like it would be weird for us to go to Lebanon and be like, yeah, we're keeping you safe from Israel. Like we're funding Israel yeah. doing this. So they're like, how would it look? What are we supposed to do? And they don't quite know how to handle this. So the Joint Chiefs of Staff all unanimously oppose deploying any U.S. troops as part of this U.N. multinational force to Lebanon. They're like, absolutely not. Uh, The National Security Council and State Department, though, are like, absolutely, yes, we should get involved in that. Uh, Because why not? (laughs) So the Joint Chiefs develop a range of options for America's participation in the MNF, including sending up to 63,000 U.S. troops to Lebanon to disarm the militias that were there and enforce peace in the territory under the control of Syria and Israel. Sounds like a match made in heaven. Right? So the Joint Chiefs are like, uh... You know, if we're going to do this, the best thing we could do is this, I guess. And without congressional approval, Reagan authorizes the deployment of what is seen as a limited mission of just 1,800 Marines. All right. And this, these Marines, they go, they join the French, Italian, and later British troops in the region as part of this multinational force. And Reagan claims, okay, we're sending these 1,800 Marines and, quote, their mission is to provide an interposition force at agreed locations, but in carrying out this mission, the American force will not engage in combat. Because it would be with Israel, at least potentially. Potentially. Yeah. Who knows? So the PLO pulls out of Beirut in August 1982. They're like, this shit's getting wild. And the MNF troops then are like, okay, we're going to take our ships offshore. We don't need to be here so much. You know, the PLO left. We're going to start to back away. So as this is going on in August 1982, Reagan actually gets really mad at Israel. This is, 
I'm learning that evil people sometimes accidentally uh, are on the right side of history. Well, this is like this thing that um, everybody's like, whoa, like Reagan demanded a ceasefire mm-hmm. from Israel at some point, And Bernie Sanders is like, it's literally impossible to demand a ceasefire from Israel for anything. So all these people are like, holy shit, Ronald Reagan is to the left of Bernie Sanders on the issue of Israel right now. For a, presumably for one moment here. Well, yeah, yeah, but I will say Reagan really committed to this. So mm-hmm. Reagan got really mad at the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Menachem Begin, over Israel doing all of these bombing raids in West Beirut, like in mm-hmm. Lebanon, right? And Reagan was like, these attacks have resulted in needless destruction and bloodshed. So this is kind of like, you got Kissinger mad at you, you're being real evil. You got Reagan saying this is needless destruction and bloodshed. You, you got it. You're doing some real bad shit for these people to be like, hey, hold on, not so fast. So Reagan gets mad, right? Mm-hmm. And on September 14th, Lebanese forces, LF leader and president-elect Bashir Grimail is assassinated by a member of the Syrian Social Nationalist Party. And now it's just like, oh my god, this, you know, multinational front that was just starting to withdraw, now they can't withdraw. Because now shit's even crazier in the region, and nobody knows what to do. So two days later, with cover from the Israeli military, fellow LF leader Eli Hobeka rallied right-wing Christian forces in Lebanon, which killed hundreds if not thousands of Palestinians and Lebanese Shias in what's known as the Sabra and Shatila massacre, with death tolls estimated between 2,000 to 3,500 people. And this leads to all this international support for another MNF deployment. Everybody's like, we gotta, we gotta go in there. And Reagan's like, fuck, what am I gonna say about this one? So Reagan says the U.S. troops would now, quote, assist the Lebanese armed forces in carrying out their responsibility for ensuring the departure of PLO leaders, officers, and combatants in Beirut from Lebanese territory and facilitate the restoration of the sovereignty and authority of the Lebanese government over the Beirut area. And he added, in no case will our troops stay longer than 30 days. Mm -hmm. But nobody actually knew what the objective was. Everyone was like, what does that mean? All that stuff Reagan just said. So they're like, uh, could you... Could you clarify, right? So this is back in September. So a few weeks later, September 29th, 1983, Reagan's like, okay, fine. I'll clarify. I can't believe you didn't understand what I said the first time. It was like so clear, but that's fine. Um, so Reagan's like, now I'm going to tell you their mission is to provide an interposition force at agreed upon locations and thereby provide the multinational presence as requested by the Lebanese government to assist it and the Lebanese armed forces. And everyone's like, okay. So then, the next month, October 1983, five U.S. Marines are killed in three separate incidents. And remember, originally, they were like, we're not going to do any combating. We're just going to lend support in a non-combat capacity. Wait, so who kills them? Um, well, I don't, we don't know for sure. Okay. Because uh, there's so much going on. Yeah. But the National Security Advisor... Robert McFarlane convinces the president to now authorize the USS New Jersey to launch attacks against the Druze militia and the Syrian forces on land. So it's probably Syria? Okay. If we have to guess. And within one week, the Hezbollah-linked militants drove two truck bombs containing a half a kiloton of explosives into the Marine barracks at the Beirut International Airport, killing 220 Marines and 21 other U.S. service members. Mm-hmm. And this so is we're, it, we didn't want to get involved we're in it we're in it every it's it's bad and and i remember 
the mm-hmm. 10-year anniversary of this happening. 1993. Uh-huh. I remember all of the TVs were talking about this. And I was just like, what? Like, I was a little kid. You know, I was yeah. like seven. And I definitely remember mm-hmm. seeing the commemorative 10-year things on the news. Just like, what is this? That? Yeah. So, this is wild, because this is a moment where Reagan can go all in mm-hmm. and be like, we're fucking going all in, or Reagan can be like, I'm out. And the Reagan administration thinks about this, and is like, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll commit. So, on the day after the barracks bombing, he reaffirms his commitment. He's like, oh, the reason they must stay there until the situation is under control is quite clear. We have vital interests in Lebanon, and our actions in Lebanon are in the cause of world peace. Uh, but then, by December 1st, Reagan starts stating, you know, the Marines are in Beirut to demonstrate the strength of our commitment to peace in the Middle East. Their presence is making it possible for reason to triumph over the forces of violence, hatred, and intimidation. And so it seems like, okay, Reagan's, like, doubling down on it. But then, nine days later, he, on December 10th, tells the United States, once internal stability is established and withdrawal of all foreign forces is assured, the Marines are going to leave. Okay. Okay, so he's like, we're going to do it. And then he's like, well, we're kind of going to do it. And then he's like, oh, we're maybe not going to do it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and, sounds, <laughs> it sounds like he's essentially negotiating what leaving in a way that doesn't suck looks like or that doesn't look bad. Yeah, he, it's an yeah. optics thing. And on February 4th, 1984, he actually like repeated something that at the time was frequently heard in debates over Afghanistan and other kind of areas of conflict. Uh, which was that if the United States withdraws from Lebanon, quote, we'll be sending one signal to terrorists everywhere. They can gain by waging war against innocent people. If we're to be secure in our homes and in the world, we must stand together against those who threaten us. But this is really interesting because you're like, is he just like honestly kind of doing the same thing Truman was doing? Where Truman was getting bounced around between all these ideas uh, by advisors and was like, I actually don't know what to do. And this is kind of what we see maybe happening with Reagan. Because it's like, you're repeating a lot of, like, talking points. You're, like, doubling down on things. You're saying a lot of nothing. And then you're backing up. Blah, blah, blah. And, and the evidence that maybe Reagan was not super committed and not sure what to do comes out three days later on February 7th when Reagan orders the Marines to redeploy their ships offshore, which actually is code for a complete withdrawal. Okay. So he's like, get, get on the boat. He's like, <laughs> we're getting the fuck out of here. I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> So this is what happens in the beginning of 1984. Uh, Reagan is like, whatever our fucking military interests are in Lebanon, we have lost the plot. Mm-hmm. We have lost the plot. Uh, the PLO is not even there anymore. The Palestinian liberation is not even there. Israel's still fighting in here for some reason. Mm-hmm. And this is just a big fucking mess. And we're outie. So meanwhile, the United States in 1984 begins to stockpile military equipment in Israel. Remember how Israel was like, you can use our stuff if you want, move in. But they're only using single-use armaments that were not allowed to be used by the IDF. So they're like, we're going to deposit some stuff here. Don't touch it. Yeah, it's like, we got we got a drawer in the dresser. That's our drawer. The, the IDF was like, you can have a drawer. And then we were like, don't touch the stuff in my drawer, though. And the IDF was like, got you. Is, is, is Israel's going to touch the stuff? Oh, we're actually going to okay. we're gonna tell them they're allowed to use whatever they want. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So 1986, a glorious year. The year of my birth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So then-Senator Joe Biden... Yep. Uh-huh. ...addresses Congress and says what's possibly my favorite quote about the U.S.'s, like, feelings about Israel... Uh, And he says, it's about time to stop 
for those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel in the United States, oh, were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interests in the region. I'm just saying, Israel in the United States would solve a lot of problems. Oh, we want to put Israel in, that would, right? Just come here. You can just, you can do it yeah. here. That's fine. Uh, yeah. So then he ends it up by saying the United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. Mm-hmm. And this to me is just like chef's kiss. This yeah. really sums it up. We are in Israel because it secures our interest in the Middle East. We are not there because we are humanitarian. We are not there because we think anything positive is happening. We... Mm-hmm are there because it is an investment in our political and economic strategy. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden's very consistent here. He's very consistent. And he also famously said, you know, I'm a Zionist. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be, you know, I can be a Zionist. I'm a Zionist. So while Joe Biden is in Congress just fucking talking about how in love with Israel he is, Israel starts to kind of step around. Israel starts seeing other people. Oh. I know. I know. I know. It's messy. Mm-hmm. So Israel is up to some shit. Okay. So on March 31st, 1986, Hal Ford, the vice chairman of National Intelligence Council, tells the director of the CIA, I am concerned that the long-term outlook for Israel and for U.S. interests relating to Israel may be much more troubled than the U.S. intelligence and policymaking communities have yet appreciated. So he goes on to say, and he's like, Israel is posing a threat due to the growth of religious fundamentalism in the region, the ending of any realistic movement to negotiate peace with Palestine, heightened anti-Israel sentiments in the region due to the rise in Israeli raids and preemptive armed actions, and he says the implications for the U.S. are being tied to a more unstable, vulnerable, and volatile ally, Israel becoming even more dependent on the U.S., and the continued inability of the U.S. to control Israel. And it turns out, He is right. The United States does not have a grip on Israel at all. On October 6, 1986, the CIA reports, Israel's nuclear stockpile is many times larger than Western intelligence experts have thought, and the country may now be able to produce hydrogen bombs capable of destroying entire cities. Uh, In a front-page story, the Sunday Times says Israel has hidden a nuclear warhead factory from spy satellites by burying it beneath a harmless-looking building besides the Dimona nuclear reactor in the Negev desert. The paper said Israel now ranks as the world's sixth most powerful nuclear power after the United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, France, and China. It also said Israel has almost certainly begun manufacturing more powerful thermonuclear weapons with yields big enough to destroy entire cities. The newspaper quoted scientists who calculate that Israel has produced at least 100 and maybe as many as 200 nuclear weapons during the past 20 years. If Israel had produced 200 nuclear weapons, it would have a nuclear arsenal 10 times as large as previously estimated by the CIA. So Israel's like, yeah, 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 you can have a drawer in our house, but you don't know about our drawer. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. This isn't even the walk-in closet, babe. Like, this is, you don't even know. Uh, I've got a hidden closet behind the spinning wall. Um, And, like, the United States, like, thought Israel might have, like, a nuclear weapon. And Israel's like, haha, don't worry about it, babe. Uh, But then the Times printed pictures of the secret warhead factory known as Macon 2. And nuclear scientists scrutinized them and were like, yeah, these are authentic. 
and the warhead factory is equipped with French plutonium extracting technology. And, you know, all of this was like, oh, shit. Israel, yeah, has a lot more going on than we thought. And while this is happening, the United States is like, I'm sorry, they have how many nuclear weapons? The whole Iran-Contra affair goes on. And guess what? Israel's involved in that, too, it turns out. November 1986, Israel is like, yeah, we transferred guns from the United States to Iran. Um, we didn't, like, know that the money from the transaction went to fund the Nicaraguan Contras, though. Is it bad that we're just admitting publicly that we took guns from the United States and gave them to Iran Mm -hmm. during your little embargo? And it was bad that Israel admitted they did this because, yeah, Iran was under an arms embargo and the United States had been trying to use Israel as, like, a covert middleman. And Israel was like... Hey, we're we're doing your guns. We're doing your guns so hard. Oh my god, did that mess you up? <gasps> Awkward. And the United States is like, what the fuck, Israel? Are you throwing us under the bus on purpose? Mm-hmm. And the Reagan administration had, yes, hoped to use the sale of the weapons to fund the Contras, who are a right-wing anti-communist militant group in Nicaragua to fight communism in South America. So internal CIA documents also indicate that there were growing sentiments within Israel to re-establish diplomatic ties with Russia. Oh, my God. And Israel's just getting around. Yeah, Israel in 1986 is like, what if we did everything the United States hated? And the United Mm -hmm. States is like, are you fucking... So we spent years. We spent Mm -hmm. years cultivating this special relationship. And now you're talking to Russia? You're just texting Russia all night? Like, what the Mm -hmm. fuck? And as if that weren't enough, Israel also gets caught stealing U.S. technology. Reported by the Chicago Tribune, July 10th, 1986, Israel is caught stealing U.S. technology to make secret cluster bombs. Yes. Oh, I, I thought it was going to be really cute technology, but... <laughs> no, no, I know, shocking. Uh, and then, in the following year, in 1987, a spy conspiracy emerges, because, of course, why not? American Jonathan J. Pollard turns out, admits to spying on the U.S. military for Israel. And in 1987, the Washington Post reports, although Israel has repeatedly insisted that the Pollard spy ring was a renegade operation, Pollard said in a memorandum filed in federal court that it is beyond reason to believe that senior Israeli officials were unaware of his spying. Pollard, a former U.S. Navy intelligence analyst who pled guilty uh, to espionage, made the assertions in a 61-page document filed in advance of his March 10th sentencing and faces a maximum penalty of life in prison and a $250,000 fine, according to the Washington Post article. Prosecutors said that the Israelis paid Pollard $2,500 a month, financed European vacations for him and his wife, and promised him $300,000 over 10 more years. Meanwhile, uh, the Palestinian Communist Party joined a seat on the PLO Executive Committee the same year. So the United States Mm -hmm. is like, Israel stepping around on us, Mm -hmm. stepping out on us. Uh, The communists are gaining power in the Palestinian liberation movement. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to talk to Russia again. Everything, and Russia, this is 84? This is 87. 87? Not doing so hot. Not doing so hot. Yeah. Yeah. So, by 1989, the United States is like, we've got to get a control on this Israel situation. Mm-hmm. What do they do? They're like, we should try being even nicer to them. Bribe them. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be no, this so is, nice. I, I kept thinking, like, this is the deal. Israel's like, let's see what we can get away with. Oh, yeah. I bet you they'll just give us more shit. Right. Yeah. So, uh, the United States is like, 
Israel, come back to us. We're going to be so much better to you. We're going to give you even more stuff. And the George H.W. Bush administration alters the terms of that stockpile arrangement, the drawer that we're allowed to fill up with stuff in Israel's house, to provide Israel access to our drawer whenever they want. For emergencies, it's like giving somebody a credit card. I mean, like, for emergencies only, you can use my credit card. So, I, Israel has already proved itself to be very capable of finding emergencies. Yes, they will invent emergencies, yes. Um, and they will tell everybody it's an emergency. Even when people are like, I really don't think this is an emergency. They're like, no, it's urgent. We are fucking <laughs> under attack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, also during this time, it was kind of important for the U.S. to, like, double down on being sweet to Israel because the United States was trying to sell Saudi Arabia some tanks. And they were like, God, if Israel isn't okay with us selling Saudi Arabia tanks, this is going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. So we got to be so nice to them they don't even care that Saudi Arabia is getting a bunch of tanks. Yeah. Because Saudi Arabia doesn't love Israel. No. In, in 1989. 89. Yeah. Okay. So now we're up to the 90s. And this is something you touched on earlier, 1993 and 1995, the Oslo Accords. Mm-hmm. And this is like the first attempt at a Palestinian-Israeli peace agreement. Yeah. I mean, there have been some other attempts, but you know, the thing about these peace agreements is like the deal is never fair for Palestine. Yeah, this is, I mean, right, you know... It is often said that Palestine continues to reject a two-state solution, and then you kind of look at the terms and you're like... Oh, yeah, it's always shit like, you cannot control your own border, and you get no military. Yeah. And also, you just get these two weird places, and there's no way to get between them. Yeah. Tee-hee. And then it's like, who would fucking say yes to that? What? This is wild. So, 1993-1905, the Oslo Accords. And this does lead to the formation of the Palestinian Authority as an administrative body that's supposed to govern govern Palestinian internal security, as well as administration and civilian affairs for a five-year interim period. And in this, the occupied West Bank gets divided into three areas, Area A, Area B, Area C, and Area A. Uh, initially comprised 3% of the West Bank. It grew to 18% by 1999. And in Area A, the PA controls most of the affairs. In Area B... 22% of the West Bank is represented, and in both areas, while the PA is in charge of education, health, and the economy, the Israelis have full control over external security, meaning they retain the right to enter at any time. And Area C represented 60% of the West Bank under the Oslo Accords control of the area was supposed to be handed over to the PA, but instead Israel just retained total control over everything, including security, planning, and construction, and the transfer of control to the PA just never happened. That sounds right. Like... Yes. Mm-hmm. So while this is going on, also in 1995, the United States and Israel establish a new little fun bond uh-huh. for us. It's the U.S.-Israel Science and Technology Foundation, and that's to fund and administer projects mandated by the U.S.-Israel Science and Technology Commission. Such as? So this is a bilateral entity jointly established by the U.S. Department of Commerce and the Israel Ministry of Industry, Trade, and Labor and it is supposed to foster scientific, technological, and economic cooperation between the two countries. So, such as anything. Okay. I think just anything. Yeah. Yeah. And in 1999, something major happens. The Memorandum of Understanding. Do you know what this is? No. Okay, there's been a few of these memorandums of understandings that have passed since then. Uh, and, you know, American assistance to Israel now comes from these government-to-government memorandums of understanding 
starting in 1999. Uh, there are these special agreements. The rules don't apply to Israel, that kind of thing. Yeah. So normally when you want to give aid, like Congress gets involved, you know, people have the veto, but it's like a whole thing. So the United States was like, we need a way to just get Israel money whenever we want, however we want, without anybody getting involved. So this is just Israel asked for money and we don't, no one has to like sign anything. So basically here's how it is. Uh, it's not a treaty, it's not legally binding, and it doesn't require Senate ratification. So Congress doesn't get a say in what happens, but mm-hmm. the memorandums of understanding are set up in advance. Mm-hmm. So if Israel is like, we need this much money over the next 10 years, the memorandums of understanding are like, hey, for 10 years Israel gets this much money and nobody can say anything about it. You know, if I were Israel, I feel like this is a thing where I would overestimate if you don't uh, use it, you lose it. Yeah, so, yeah, go big. Um, go big. Mm-hmm. I, like, I think I would be telling uh, the United States that I might need enough money to fund a U.S. healthcare system, for example. For example. So, 2000-2009 comes about. And during this time period, the United States supplies 5,890 JDAM kits to Israel. These are joint direct attack munition kits. It's a guidance kit that converts unguided bombs into all-weather precision guided bombs. It's like smart bombs. And these were developed by Boeing for the U.S. Air Force. Uh, we also supplied 500 Paveway laser-guided bombs and 150 GBU-28 bombs, uh, which is also a laser-guided bomb bunker-busting bomb designed to penetrate, like, hardened earth mm-hmm. and, like, hardened surfaces. Both were developed by, you will never guess, you will never guess, Texas Instruments. The calculator people? I literally wrote the calculator people. Yes, the calculator people! Uh, and manufactured by none other than Raytheon. Okay, uh, do you mind if we put a pen in the fact that, like, I, the Al Jazeera article I sent you today made a, what I think is a significant point mm-hmm. about the fact that smart bombs yeah. uh, are not so smart. No. The, mm-hmm. Like, no. Uh, they kill civilians all the time. Yeah, they're not very good at targeting things. Um, And as a consequence of which, the sort of, like, rhetorical move to call these things smart bombs is also a move to obscure the fact that human rights violations are happening right it's like well we were aiming for them the bomb's supposed to just go there Mm -hmm. i don't know what happened but no it's like yeah these things are not very smart and they massively wound and kill civilians as we've seen in gaza strip recently so texas instruments develops these things calculator people they're manufactured by raytheon and just for a little reference that same period 2008 because we're talking about 2000 2009 here in 2008 raytheon ceo william swanson uh made headlines by getting a 6% pay increase to a total compensation package for that year of $15.9 million. And in today's money, that would be like $22.7 million per year in salary for this guy, paid for in large part by U.S. tax dollar money that funded the development of these bombs, which were then bought from Raytheon and given to Israel with the special memorandum of understanding money that doesn't get traced where we just get to give Israel anything they want. Yeah. Yeah. 2006, during the summer of 2006, war broke out between Israel and Hezbollah, and Israel requested that the United States expedite the delivery of precision-guided munitions to Israel, right? Israel's Mm -hmm. like, babe, could you jump? And we're like, how high? Yeah. How high? 
So the George W. Bush administration doesn't do this using this emergency authority that we're allowed to use, but instead just allows Israel to use anything they want in our stockpile, Mm -hmm. in our drawer that they granted us. So in 2008, uh, we start working together on this project with Israel to make this thing called David's Sling. It's your name. It's your sling. This, uh, we're going after Goliath. Yeah, we're going after Goliath. Specifically, uh... Who is Goliath? Palestinians. Um, it's, uh, kind of everybody. It was really yeah. everybody. So, in 2008, August, Israel and the United States officially signed this project agreement to co-develop the David Sling system. Mm-hmm. It is a short to medium range system designed to counter long range rockets and slower flying cruise missiles fired at ranges from anywhere between 25 to 186 miles. Uh, such as those may be possessed by Iran, Syria, and Lebanon. Okay. So Hezbollah and Lebanon. And it is designed to intercept missiles uh, with ranges and trajectories, and it is developed jointly by Rafael Advanced Defense Systems and Raytheon. Um, David Sling uses Raytheon stunner missiles for interception, and each launcher can hold up to 16 missiles, so we could, like, take them, and then, like, throws them back. That sounds really complicated yeah uh-huh yeah. and then in 2011 uh we developed something else called the iron dome which is like a short range air missile defense system which is like all using like u.s constructed parts and funded mostly by the u.s but just like in israel yeah which is like yeah we'll just build so we started just like building all of this stuff for israel to use just i mean we're really like cutting out a lot of the middlemen instead of just being like we'll give you money and you build it we're like, we'll just get our guys over there and we'll just do it for you. Yeah. We're just going to do it. So that gets us to like 2010 to 2022, mm-hmm. maybe. So U.S. supplies to Israel in this time period, 8,550 GBU-39 SDBs, small diameter bombs that are extended range, all weather, day or night, guided munitions made by Boeing. We also supply 11,489 JDAM kits that turn the not smart bombs into the quote unquote smart bombs, and we give them 700 paveway bombs. Now, a 2010 agreement between the United States and Israel allows for Israel to use a total of $15.2 billion in military grants from the United States to buy F 35 fighter jets from Lockheed Martin. Okay. Yeah, and whenever mm-hmm. I hear the Lockheed Martin thing, I think about that uh, Lockheed, Lockheed, Martin, Marietta, that song. It's, oh, uh, oh. Fugazi, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh, about uh-huh. the merger of Lockheed Martin and Marietta Weapons Companies. Okay, anyway, okay. it's a better yeah. song. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so 2013, then Vice President Joe Biden describes the U.S.'s support of Israel by saying, it's not only a long-standing moral commitment, it's a strategic commitment. An independent Israel, secure in its own borders, recognized by the world, is in the practical strategic interest of the United States of America. I used to say, if there were no Israel, we'd have to invent one. So he is, he's consistent. He's I, very consistent. I don't appreciate what he's consistent about, but I do appreciate that he is both honest. Yeah. And? Unapologetically so. Yeah. You know, they always say, when someone shows you who they are, believe them i i think we have been uh believing him we have been shown and have been believing exactly the kind of man joe biden Mm -hmm. is in july 2014 during israeli military operations uh 
against Hamas in the Gaza Strip, the Defense Department permitted Israel to draw again from the U.S. stockpile to replenish 120mm tank rounds and 40mm illumination rounds fired from grenade launchers. Mm -hmm. So we know, point blank, that the weapons Israel used against the Gaza Strip in 2014 were not even like the United States like sold them the weapons or we gave them over. They were literally our weapons we yeah. own. We were like, yeah, yeah, take our shit. Go, go shoot those people. Go kill them. Have fun. Have a blast. No pun intended. Mm-hmm. And two years later in 2016, we passed another memorandum of understanding. How much? Uh, oh, wait. I'm sorry. There's no amount. It... Oh, well, there is an amount because okay. they get to request it and then we just type mm-hmm. it up. So this is under Obama's leadership. And I'll tell you, nobody is more surprised, uh, more proud, I guess is the word, of their support for Israel than the Obama administration was. These people were just like, we supported Israel so hard. I have to say, Netanyahu was dragging Obama pretty hard at the time. Do you remember this? Yes! This was the thing where they were like, we hate this guy, this guy totally sucks. Yes, even though Obama did not like Netanyahu's leadership, he was still like, what are we going to do, not support Israel? Come on, be real. Of course we're going to support Israel. So, they passed a 10-year security assistance memorandum of understanding to Israel, which supported updating the Israeli aircraft fleet and maintaining Israel's missile defense system at $38 billion, which is like $3.8 billion per year, just in this memorandum of understanding. And it also committed $500 million in missile defense funding and $3.3 billion in other military funding every year from 2009 all the way up to 2028. It was the third memorandum of understanding following two signed during the George W. Bush and Clinton administrations. It also, like, the Obama administration would very, very proudly and vocally talk about how much they were giving to Israel specifically. And they said that the Obama administration gave $8.5 million in funding to Israel every single day in total. They're bragging about They're this. bragging about it. They're like, we're giving these people $8.5 million a day. And you're like, could we have $8.5 million a day to support our failing infrastructure and maybe pay for health care and give homeless people homes? And they're like, shut up, poors. Yeah. No, nobody can afford that, mm-hmm. you fucking idiots. Uh, so in addition to military funding, the Obama administration also signed the U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership Act, which authorized $3 million to be spent on research pilot programs between Israeli government agencies and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They also authorized the Department of Defense's Chemical Biological Defense Response Units to work with the IDF to provide equipment and training, and authorized the Department of Defense to sell or provide, free of charge, millions of dollars worth of U.S. excess defense articles to the IDF. Uh, supporting their needs for spare parts, weapons, and simulators to maintain their current fleets. So this is, uh, they're doing what they do to uh, cops in the United States. They're like, oh my god, we have all of this military surplus stuff. You could totally have that too. Yeah, just take it. We spent taxpayer money to buy the shit from Raytheon, and that guy got to take the money and be like, record profits Raytheon, I get a raise, haha. And then we didn't keep track of the money, because why would we do that? Mm -hmm. We don't know how much exactly, but like a lot. And yeah. then it turns out it was all kind of broken and weird and we don't use it. So you can just, like, have it for parts. And it, this is your donor car for yeah, your tank. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Um, they also allocated more than $47 million on research and development task plans for tunnel detection and mapping technologies. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2021, uh, there were some Israeli attacks on Palestine. Right? May 10th, I mean, there's been a lot this whole time. Yeah, I, I was wondering, 
if I recall correctly, in 2014, it was 1,400 casualties? Um, that feels like it could be right. And there um, are places you can look up the year-by-year casualties from mm-hmm. Palestine and Israel. Yeah. And it is wild. There's also um, this one website called Counting the Kids, where you can mm-hmm. see every year how many Palestinian, Palestinian children were killed by the IDF versus Israeli children killed. And it is one of the most harrowing, disturbing things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um. So... The attacks on Palestine have been constant. They've been going on. But, you know, we're here to talk specifically about the United States' role mm-hmm. in Israel. And the reason why these ones are uh, important is because we know for certain that at least two of these attacks used American weapons. Mm-hmm. So, May 10th, 2021, a Beit Hanun, an Israeli-guided missile, struck four houses of the Al-Masri family, killing eight civilians, including six children. Uh, May 15th, the Al-Shati refugee camp. A guided bomb destroyed a three-story building in the Al-Shati refugee camp, killing 10 civilians, uh, two women, and eight children from two related families. And on May 16th, on Al-Wada Street, uh, there was a series of Israeli airstrikes lasting four minutes that struck uh, in Gaza City, causing three multi-story buildings to collapse, killing 44 civilians. The Israeli military said it was targeting tunnels and an underground command center used by armed groups, but presented no details to support that claim. And yeah, these are the three attacks that we know for certain at least two of them used American weapons. On May 30th, uh, Human Rights Watch requested permits for senior Human Rights Watch observers to enter Gaza to conduct further investigation of the hostilities that resulted in these attacks. Uh, but Israeli authorities rejected the request. And they have request uh, rejected every single request for Human Rights Watch uh, international staff to come since 2008, with the exception of one single visit they authorized in 2016. So, in 2022, uh, May, a prominent Al Jazeera journalist, Shireen Abu Akleh, who was a U.S. citizen, was killed by a gunshot to the head, to the face, in the mm. area of Jenin, where Israeli security forces were trading fire with Palestinians. Do you remember this, David? I do. Yeah, this yeah. was major, because she was a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. and she was a journalist, yeah. and killing journalists is a war crime, and Israel has done a lot of that, and recently we have even seen Israel proudly say that they are targeting journalists and photographers to kill them, Yeah, which is wild. Um, so her death triggered an international outcry, and... Also, we saw images and videos afterward of the IDF uh, disrupting her funeral in East Jerusalem, attacking people who were carrying her casket. It's really, really brutal watching the videos of the funeral, too. And the U.S. State Department called for an immediate and thorough investigation into her murder. So in July 2022, the State Department issued a statement that said the U.S. Security Coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Authority oversaw an independent process uh, summarizing Israeli and PA investigations as the Palestinian Authority. They concluded that Israeli gunfire killed Abu Akleh, but found no reason to believe it was intentional, is what they said. After conducting an internal investigation, the IDF said in September 2022 that there was a high possibility that she was accidentally hit by IDF gunfire, uh, and that brought about additional public criticism from PA officials and Abu Akleh's family members, who were like, this shooting was clearly not accidental, like you were targeting Mm -hmm. journalists because you don't want them talking about what you're doing in Palestine. And in November 2022, media reports said that the FBI had opened an investigation into Abu Akleh's death. In December of 2022, eight senators wrote a letter to the U.S. Department of Justice demanding that the U.S. government's investigations into the IDF on the matter of her murder be closed immediately. Mm-hmm. 
So in fall 2022, uh, Haaretz reported that staff at the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem were preparing an internal report on the IDF's Netza Yehuda Battalion to determine if some of its soldiers committed violations while serving in the West Bank. And as of January 2023, the IDF reportedly conducted its own investigation of the unit and dismissed or reassigned several commanders while transferring the entire battalion from the West Bank to Golan Heights. And the assumption there is that the IDF is trying to say it was somebody in their battalion, that battalion, who did it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that gets us to 2023. Um, According to the International Institute for Strategic Studies, Military Balance 2023, Israel's Air Force currently has 339 American-made fighter jets, which carry a variety of bombs, including the JDAMs we talked about earlier, these things called MK-81s, MK-82s, and MK-84s, the latest of which, the MK-84, is a 2,000-pound bomb. Okay. So in October 2023, within the first week of the war, the Biden administration sent 1,800 joint direct attack munitions. Those are the JDAM kits, small diameter bombs, and other munitions to Israel. And most of the bombs Israel has dropped uh, on Gaza since October 7th um, belong to the United States-designed MK-80 family. Those ones I referenced, the MK-81, the MK-82, the MK-84. Uh, and that also includes those JDAM, Paveway, blah, 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 small theater bombs mm-hmm. that we've been supplying Israel for years, too. So these are the bombs that are made by Raytheon and Boeing. And today, Raytheon CEO Gregory Hayes got a raise of 3.7% last year to a total compensation package of $22.61 million per year. So pretty consistent, keeping up with inflation. This is mm-hmm. how much the CEOs of Raytheon are earning. And Boeing CEO David Calhoun reportedly earned $22.5 million last year. So this is where our money is going. And the New York Times and The Guardian reported that some of those 2,000-pound bombs, uh, like the MK-84, those were used to bomb the Jabalia refugee camp on October 31st. So for reference, a 500-pound blast will severely damage, injure, or kill everything or anyone within 20 meters or 65 feet. But a 2,000-pound blast, like the MK-84s that were used to bomb the refugee camp, will increase the destruction to around 115 feet and carve a crater of 50 feet across and 16 feet deep. So this is yeah. this is the American-made weapons that were used mm-hmm. uh, on the refugee camp. And on November 2nd, the United States passed a bill providing an additional $14.5 billion in military aid to Israel, uh, which, just for reference, is over half the annual price of ending hunger or homelessness in the United States. And on November 7th, according to the latest data from the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the World Health Organization, and the Palestinian government, uh, uh, Israel's attacks have damaged or destroyed half of Gaza's homes, 220,000 residential units, 278 schools, 270 healthcare facilities, 69 places of worship, including mosques and churches, 45 ambulances, and 11 bakeries. And those U.S.-supplied smart bombs we talked about are responsible for this damage. Um, But as you mentioned, David, these smart bombs are not actually smart. Uh, Elijah Magnier, who's a military analyst covering conflicts in the Middle East, told Al Jazeera, Israel's use of smart bombs in Gaza is part of a broader military strategy aimed at accurately targeting militant infrastructure to achieve military objectives with no attempt to limit civilian casualties and infrastructure damage. The effectiveness of these weapons in achieving strategic objectives without causing disproportionate harm is impossible. Yeah. So, um, as of a March 2023 report, the Congressional Research Service says that the United States and Israel have maintained strong bilateral relations based on a number of factors, including shared strategic goals in the Middle East. 
U.S. foreign aid has been a major component in cementing and reinforcing these ties. U.S. officials and many lawmakers have long considered Israel to be a vital partner in the region, and U.S. aid packages for Israel have reflected this calculation. So, am I correct in understanding that in the middle of all this, we did just pass a, or the Congress passed a, what was it, 14 yes. billion dollar yep. spending bill to Israel? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is as information was coming out that our bombs, uh, our missiles were or being used to destroy refugee camps. Yeah, and kill yeah. children. Yeah. A lot of children. 40% mm-hmm. of the, well, 90, I think last time I looked, 92% of the casualties since October 7th in Palestine have been civilians, and mm-hmm. over 40% have been children. Yeah. So this is really our bombs, our mm-hmm. tax dollars are buying bombs to kill children. Yeah. And this is really the crux of, like, the United States and Israeli bond, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we give Israel carte blanche to do whatever they want as long as they help us get oil Mm -hmm. and they give us a military outpost to fight whatever battles we want in the Middle East against anybody who might be our enemy. Yeah, which we pick, you know, every few... I mean, it was We pick a new one, yeah. yeah. It was Iraq, and then it was Afghanistan, and then... Uh, Libya got in there for a bit. Oh, yeah, Libya was in there, the Gaddafi thing, yeah. Um, As Al Jazeera reports, maintaining Israel's regional military hegemony is a core element of the United States Middle East policy. This has been achieved by the U.S. funding an increasing military uh, arsenal for Israel. Former Israeli officials have argued that regardless of Israel's political orientation, U.S. aid to Israel should remain unconditional given Israel's value to U.S. interests in the Middle East. Which is interesting because that's about that Netanyahu thing that you were saying. It's like, Obama didn't like Netanyahu, but it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. You just give all the support to Israel you can because they secure our military and economic and political interests in the region. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joe Biden literally went from criticizing the current leadership of Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Mm -hmm. right-wing conservative government, to saying, you know, just a few months later, we stand with Israel and we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens. Yeah. Even while the United States does not take care of its own citizens. Like, we are not being taken care of, but yeah. our president is making sure we know that we will always pay for Israel to take care of its citizens. Um, appearing alongside Netanyahu, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken last month said, You may be strong enough to defend yourself, but as long as America exists, you will never have to. We will always be there by your side. You know, I... Uh... We're a great boyfriend now, I guess. Yeah, we're a very loyal boyfriend now, Um, even though Israel is not. Uh, But yeah, so like the way that analysts talk about this is like Israel is in the American camp. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, and we don't even have to worry about it. And like, of course, Secretary Blinken's over there. It's to show solidarity. Like, that's Mm -hmm. our partner in the Middle East. And the U.S. State Department says Israel is a great partner to the United States, and Israel has no greater friend than the United States. Americans and Israelis are united by our shared commitment to democracy, economic prosperity, and regional security. Uh, and really heavy on the economic prosperity there, I think. Mm-hmm. The unbreakable bond between our two countries has never been stronger. So the question is why? What is actually being exchanged here? So the first thing is obviously money and power. For Israel, you know, today the World Power Index ranks Israel's military and economy as the 10th most powerful in the world. 
In addition, um, Michael Hanna, who's the U.S. Director for the International Crisis Group, says the relationship has played a huge part in the advancement and sophistication of the Israeli armed forces. Israel's relationship to the U.S. is also unique in the region in that it's demonstrated in the U.S.'s commitment to maintain Israel's qualitative military edge, which is aimed to guarantee that Israel remains militarily superior to any other regional military. And what the USA gets in return... Well, Washington got was effectively a U.S. military outpost uh, in what American military strategists thought was the most important region in the world. Instead of spending an estimated $125 billion to secure an interest in the region through U.S. military expenses, the U.S. could just finance at an additional or initial rather cost of $106 billion per year early on Israel's ability to do all of that on its own. And we could just tap into access whenever it was convenient. So in exchange, the United States received intelligence services in the region, troops trained and familiar with the territory and ideologically committed to defending capitalism in the area, all the weapons they would ever need stored there in the Middle East, and no need to convince the U.S. public for a military incursion or to deploy the U.S. military thousands of miles away, because the IDF could just be the U.S.'s proxy army in the Middle East. There's also uh, the exchange of capital for private business. Joel Benin, who's the professor of Middle East history at Stanford University, says the military-industrial surveillance complexes of both countries are very tightly intertwined. American capacities are now, to some extent, dependent on Israel. So billions of dollars the United States sends to Israel just wind up coming back to our military-industrial complex, like the purchase of those Raytheon-made American bombs. And Raytheon is the world's second-largest weapons company. It's just based in a suburb of Boston right here. Mm -hmm. And Israel spends a significant portion of the billions of U.S. dollars of military aid that we provide each year on Raytheon weaponry. Like, Israel has used Raytheon's missiles and bombs repeatedly in its attacks on densely populated areas in Palestine. In 2008 to 2009, for example, Israel used F-16 aircraft armed with Raytheon missiles in an aerial assault on Gaza called Operation Operation Cast Lead, in which Israel killed 1,383 Palestinians and injured 5,300. And following this murderous aerial bombing campaign, Amnesty International found fragments of a 500-pound bomb with Raytheon markings amongst the rubble in Gaza. The Israeli military also used F-16 fighter jets armed with Raytheon missiles in 2014 during Operation Protective Edge. And the Israeli Navy uses Raytheon phalanx weapon systems to enforce an ongoing naval blockade of the Gaza Strip. Which, Mm Because, you know, one side of the Gaza Strip is against the water, but there's a naval blockade. So there's like... Mm -hmm. You can't leave. You can't access supplies. There's an embargo. That's right. I I think I've read reports that uh, some fishing boats have been targeted in the recent... Yes. Yeah. That's true. There were people posting to social media, like, thank God we have mm-hmm. fishing boats so we can eat because uh, the refugees in Gaza were not able to secure food. Mm-hmm. And then Israel bombed the fishing boats. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that... Naval blockade of the Gaza Strip is how Israel deprives Gaza's nearly 2 million residents of materials needed to construct and maintain basic humanitarian civilian infrastructure, like water purification or functioning sewage systems. Mm -hmm. And the water thing's major. People in Gaza are constantly struggling to get access to clean water uh, because anything that could be used to purify water is so heavily controlled by Israel. And Raytheon received over $26 billion through the U.S. Department of Defense contracts in the year 2020 alone, which made it the second largest recipient of money from the DOD contracts that year. Raytheon also openly acknowledges that they think war, military escalation worldwide is good for business. In January 2022, Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes was asked how Raytheon views rising tensions worldwide, and he replied by saying, 
we are seeing, I would say, opportunities for international sales. Uh, war is a growth opportunity. War is a growth opportunity. So our countries purchase bombs and weapons, in part with taxpayer money, from private companies like Raytheon and Boeing, causing their CEOs to rake in millions of dollars per year, and then in turn, like, give those weapons to Israel, utilizing government grant programs, American businesses bolstered, and as long as Israel has a military objective in sight and wants weapons... We'll be there to give them to him. And we have, what was the special agreement? Is that what it was oh, called? Oh, yeah. We yeah. have the special relationship. No, but no, then we have the, the, oh, the, it's like the M something something. Uh, where we just like, we essentially fill out the check, but leave the amount blank. <laughs> yeah. And they uh, get to tell us what they want. Exactly. The memorandum of understanding. That's yeah. what it is. M-O-U. The memorandum of understanding. Um. Yeah, and the arms industry contributes massive amounts of money to congressional campaigns as well and has a considerable stake in supporting massive arms shipments to Israel and other Middle Eastern allies in the United States. Like, the lobbying, first of all, and also the campaign contributions. Mm -hmm. Like, our weapons industry has, like, a lock on Congress. Like, we it controls Congress, basically. And this means that it's easier for a member of Congress to challenge a $60 million arms deal to Indonesia than like a $2 billion arms deal to Israel because of the lobbying and the groups and how they're being funded. It's just like, well, I have more people arguing with me about turning down aid to Israel, even if it's $2 billion, than I would against $60 million to Indonesia. Like, yeah. Indonesia doesn't have lobbying groups here really representing its interests like Israel does. Um, particularly when lots of also congressional districts include factories that produce the military hardware. Yeah. Right? Which, I mean, at this point, it, it also seems like it becomes very difficult or at least problematic to muster any sort of protest among people because so many jobs rely yes. on building those bombs. Right, the military-industrial complex, yeah. right? It's um, an industry. Um, also, the United States is Israel's top trading partner. We have an annual bilateral trade of nearly $50 billion in goods and services outside of all the military aid. Uh, there's also the issue of oil, too. That's another reason. Like, no story about the Middle East is complete without addressing the role of oil. Like, the Middle East accounts for 31% of global oil production, 18% of natural gas production, and 48% of the world's proven oil reserves, and 40% of the world's proven natural gas reserves. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is still, yes, dependent on Middle Eastern oil. U.S. officials maintain that our relationship with Israel keeps at bay the unrest that would threaten our access to the region's oil supply, still to this day. And that's why the U.S.'s stated goal is to create an integrated, prosperous, and secure Middle East that allows the oil to flow. So one of the, like, things, though, that I think is interesting, because all of this is obviously really, really, really depressing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this huge conspiracy of evil that all Americans somehow are complicit in, whether we want to be or not. Yeah. Um, is that I feel like public opinion is finally starting to shift on just, like, unilateral support for Israel and letting Israel do whatever it wants. It, yeah, there's no more... I mean, I think I, I said earlier uh, that you were you seem to locate it in generational divide, and it does seem like uh, young people are more likely to be skeptical of Israel's... Yes. Uh claims to our support or I think, claims to u.s support yeah i think um, part of it is probably just because like israel is getting so bad at the propaganda yeah which is i mean 
you know, I said elsewhere that it, a lot of the propaganda seems so cynical and so, like... And it, it's cartoonish. It's, it's not believable. Yeah, I mean, a part of me feel... We, you know, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking of all the instances in it, which is real, sort of like, let's see what we can get away with. Yeah. And a part of me feels like the propaganda is just that, where it's yeah. just like, it doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't matter what we say. The support's always going to be there. There's like, so right, there's this sort of popular uh, resistance among most of the people I know, though obviously my... Uh, you know, my friend group might be a little bit skewed um, to continued support for Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, does you and I went to protests in 2003? Yes. Um, that at the time were globally called some of the largest protests in history. Yeah, that's true. Um, against the Iraq war. And, like, you know, I have to hope that something would be different this time. But, I don't know, do you... Is there hope? I mean, I think there is. I think there is a hope. I mean, it was hard, because we did go to those protests, and they were massive. And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, this will really change something. These protests are huge. Yeah. And it didn't change anything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's this thing where it's like, you can protest... Protest is supposed to be a threat, and, like, mm-hmm. the United States government calls our bluff at every protest. Yeah. It's like they know there's no case, no chance of, like, actual destabilization. Mm-hmm. However, like, say what you will about the politics of voting, right? Like, you're not going to vote your way out of capitalism, mm-hmm. is what I always say. Um, But, you know, in March 2023, Democrats marginally supported Palestinians over Israelis for the first time in history. Oh. So, you know, it just depends on, Mm -hmm. I guess, sometimes people's opinions do influence the Overton window, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, like, what political and social opinions politicians are allowed to have and still get elected. Mm -hmm. So I will say, I think it's getting less and less socially acceptable for a politician to just be like, yeah, I don't give a fuck about the killing kids thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And now people are like, what do you mean you don't give a fuck about the killing kids thing? Like, that is not socially acceptable. So, I mean, in terms of what that'll actually change in the United States, I don't know, but it will, at the very, very least, in my most cynical part of my brain, it will make it so that politicians can't just say this shit out loud. And, like, I think the Overton window shifting on Israel is something really interesting, especially when you look at Bernie Sanders. And, like, Mm -hmm. when Bernie Sanders came out, I don't know if you remember if we were friends during that time, but, like, I remember being like, yeah, but he's still got this, like, weird fucked up opinion Uh, about Israel. And that's something, like, we talked Mm -hmm. about. It's like, yeah, he's fine. He's not the real deal. Like, his opinions on Israel are atrocious. Mm-hmm. But do you remember, like, Bernie mania? Nobody was even thinking about Bernie Sanders' opinions on Israel, it felt like. Yeah, I mean, I think people were... It was uh, a thimble full of water in the desert. Yeah, that's a great way to describe Bernie Sanders during that time. Like, <laughs> yeah. Where it was, it was one of those things where it was like, oh my... I, we got something. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah. I like. I remember at the time being like, "Yeah, this you guys, you're, you're being not to mix metaphors. You're being awful enthusiastic about crumbs." Yeah. Um, but right, like, and his, you know, his positions on Israel were sort of one of those things where it was like, okay, but we could maybe get healthcare for 
second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, which felt pathetic to... But that's like electoral politics. Yeah. It's always pathetic. You're always compromising something major. And I think, like, now, at least, when I go on Twitter, everybody is dragging Bernie Sanders to filth over his policies on, on Israel. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that feels like progress. And, like... Mm-hmm. Historically, un- unconditional support for Israel had been popular in the mm-hmm. U.S. and arguably due to anti-Semitism left over from World War II, mm-hmm. which was where white nationalists didn't want to welcome in Jewish refugees to our own mm-hmm. country. Uh, you know, we were like, yeah, put them somewhere else because we don't want to deal with them. I mean, there is that sort of like, you know, the we mentioned this with what's his name advising Truman, the sort of white evangelical bullshit. Yes. Right, that, which is like a... That's in our bonus episode, yeah. Um... That is a larger... I mean, that's like a section of the American people. Yeah. I was saying to someone the other day that I, I, you know, having gone to an evangelical school and having watched that, like, the the ideology is really bizarre. It's really out of its mind. Or, like, you know, the evangelical world about Israel is really out of its mind. But I also think, when I look at it, that... I think the ideology follows money, follows the stuff that you, right, described in this episode, follows what uh, American corporations making money hand over fist, selling weapons to Israel, um, American interests being supported in Israel uh, through spending billions of dollars on defense aid. Yeah. Um, and so the ideology is there to sort of provide... Um, provide like provide like a justification for something that on its face looks so absurd i think that's something that we're starting to see though because people are starting to argue that maybe the benefits of the united states relationship with israel don't justify like the moral price obviously but also like the literal price tag like uh stephen walt who's a professor of international affairs at harvard kennedy school wrote in 2021 that the decades of brutal israeli control have demolished the moral cause uh case rather for unconditional u.s support but now you have people starting to look at like well financially is this actually worth it to us uh you know especially if it means all of a sudden your candidates can't win elections Mm -hmm. like if the and and you've seen like kind of these polls come out recently where it's like the majority of american voters right now are in favor of a ceasefire between israel and palestine like they they want that like the majority of democrats the majority of republicans the majority of independents However, like no, like six people in Congress supported a ceasefire, and that's it. Yeah. And you have all these congressional staffers being like, "Never in my life have I seen such a disconnect between what American voters want and what Congress wants." And, and I think that's pretty major because, you know, if people do get outraged enough, somebody's going to start to care about how it affects their bottom line, and that's just like how capitalism works. The only thing people listen to is like the economic incentive, and at a certain point, you wonder like. What amount is the dollar cost no longer worth it for capitalists to support the unconditional genocidal war machine that is Israel? Yeah, I mean, it's that, like, I, I've seen some, like, re-stirrings of BDS campaigns. Is that something you, I mean, I don't, I never know if that makes much of an impact when it's, like, a bunch of, I was telling, uh, where I went to undergrad, there was a BDS movement that, um, I was telling someone recently, I, th- I think it amounted to, to getting a few products taken off the shelves of the local food co-op. 
Well, yeah, I think, like, a lot of people support boycotts in general because that's what worked in South Africa to end apartheid. Yeah. We just basically were like, it will not be profitable for you to operate this system anymore. Mm -hmm. And that actually did work in South Africa. That was part of things that worked. So I think that's why people are optimistic about the idea of some sort of boycotting situation for Israel. And, you know, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of the boycotts are things people can easily live without. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's I don't think it's that big of a a a deal to integrate like and it might be helpful you know it's like there is the humanitarian call like we've got like uh people at the human rights watch or like amnesty international being like this is like a crisis and this needs to be stopped so that does kind of speak to people's like personal moral compass right Mm -hmm. like how do you sit by and idly support ethnic cleansing or a genocide like people are starting to realize that's what it is and call it by that name and you have all these scholars coming out being like, yes, this is literally a genocide. Like, I study genocide. This is a genocide. And it's just, like, getting harder and harder to ignore the moral implications. Um, But I do think, like, right now I've seen public sentiment shift in a major way that I haven't seen in the past 23 years that I've been paying attention to what's been happening uh, with Israel. It's it's very different than any, like, um, which is heartening. Yeah. That's nice. It's promising. Uh, I, like, I hope it amounts to some. like, I think, you know, I've, as silly and probably, like, who knows as it is, I've been more or less haranguing everyone in my friend group and family group to call their representatives. Oh, yeah. The ceasefire. Did yeah. you see all the, uh, the congressional representatives are like oh just like take the phone off the hook they're like we can't keep up with the phone calls like we've never received so many phone calls like we just keep letting them ring everybody is remarking about how many people are calling so everybody in congress is just like this is wild and i really don't think congress expected it because it was really realistically like a very abrupt shift in public sentiment it went from being like everybody supports israel obviously to people now logging onto their social media feeds and seeing these horrific videos and photos of what's happening in Gaza Strip and being like, my my money supports this? Like, fuck yeah. no. Like, I'm not okay with that. So I do think maybe it is it is changing. And I feel like, you know, there's that, like, saying where it's, like, nothing happens for years and everything happens in a single day or whatever it is. Like, yeah. I can't remember the exact phrase. But it feels like maybe that's what happened. It's, like, just overnight, all of a sudden, people are like, no, this actually isn't okay. Yeah. And and I don't know why that's a social phenomenon of some kind, but I think it is. And I think just, you know, three weeks ago, everyone woke up and collectively was like, this isn't okay. I, th- you know, I do wonder how much work happened sort of like in terms of like small scale education in a really diffuse way over decades um, in terms of people learning about this this was something uh a few years before i went to the college that i went to for undergrad Mm -hmm. uh a young woman uh was killed i think in the west bank Mm -hmm. there who was an evergreen student um was she the one who tried to save the house from being demolished and was run over by the yes rachel rachel cord yes um and there is still uh, i think uh there's still, or was the last time I was there, there was still a memorial to her on the, uh, a mural on the side of a building. And it was very, it was just commonly known ar- around Olympia that this was like 
some this was a tragedy that had happened yeah um with the support of this giant war machine and in service of this war machine right um and so it like it seems like those sort of like smaller scale or like more incremental things have been sort of like pushing their way along uh like little by like over years yeah right like work by activists has happened over years and it's just with this crisis now it's beginning to like it's like manifesting it's it's, like the seeds were planted and now it's growing yeah into like dissent and anger and rage i could see that for sure yeah um well david do you have anything else you want to add to our episode about um, uh israel in the united states should i i had discussed with you posting a link to a website uh for resources <gasps> for people uh i i can do that when i get home yeah, yeah that would be great will you will share um a resource where you can call and harass your congressional representatives and make them so angry that they don't understand why the phones don't stop ringing and maybe they'll just say i guess they'll take the phones off the hook but keep calling yeah keep calling yeah Yeah, we will share that in the Um, episode description and uh yeah if you want to hear again anything else about what happened leading up to may 1948 we are trying this new system where we have more even more info like a whole extra episode on uh, our Patreon about the same topic, since the episodes were starting to get pretty long. They're starting to get three hours long, so hopefully you'll get a two-hour regular <laughs> and a one-hour bonus. Uh, and thanks, you guys, for sticking around during our transition phase. I think that you will like having David here. I hope. I think so. You're <laughs> likable. You're a likable guy. All evidence to the contrary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the episode. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us there at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $3 a month, you can access bonus content there. But if 3 bucks a month is too much for you to spend right now, we totally get it and we're just happy you're here. As always, you can find the sources for this week's episode just by scrolling down a bit in the description.